And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Posted in the what now suddenly I'm posting in the red. What's going on with that? Hi everybody. Wow, that's suddenly just really loud. Welcome to the program. We are live from the bunker. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor here at sci fi for mecom Welcome to all of you who are with us live. We are broadcasting to YouTube, Odyssey, and Rumble. And maybe it's going to work. I don't know. It's one of those things. Rumble's been acting up. YouTube's been acting up. If you are not with us live, you can still leave a comment. Send us an email, live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com. Join our Discord, our social media, and all that mess. Uh, YouTube has been buffering. And yesterday, I was on on Comics Division's channel last night, and Rumble was having all sorts of aneurysms. I don't know what was going on there. So uh, it looks like maybe everything's working. But if if something happens, uh, I'm getting buffering again. <coughs> all right. So Weatherman says we're buffering over on YouTube again still. So anyway. All right. Let's say hi to everybody. Weatherman, I uh, mentioned him. Kit Ely is here. Uh, there's Mindy in the chat. Michael's here. Cam's here. Uh, Gojira76 is here, and I imagine Matuino will show up at some point. Mazarus will probably be here at some point. So, hi, everybody. <sighs> yes, we started at 1 p.m. Eastern Nerdrotic time today. So, uh, apologies for being a little, a little bit late. I had to get my coffee. <coughs> Technology. Technology is a wonderful thing, is it not? Because a couple of days ago, what was it? Tuesday. When did I have that? When did I have that cable go out? Was it Tuesday that that happened, or Wednesday? Monday. Monday. So the way I have this thing set up, as you can see here in my in my thing, over here to my left. I have my my soundboard, my my Mackie mixer that's over it's it's a good 25 30 years old. <coughs> and the microphones come into here. And the sound from the computer so when I have guests or if I'm if I'm pulling in audio from a from a YouTube channel or something like that, that's running through this cable into this mixer here, and then back to the back of the computer into the line in port. And somewhere in that, where that cable comes into the back of the tower, apparently is either (coughs) a short 
or uh, it's loose or something. I don't know. I think I'm going to have to end up getting a new cable. It, that that That's a relatively new cable as it is. But there's that. So every now and again, the sound will do things. So when I readjust, I have to reset all of the sound levels, all the audio levels, to make sure that it's posting in the right place so it's loud enough for all of you to hear without having to boost the volume all the way up on everything on your speakers and everything. But I have to also make sure that it's not too loud that it over-modulates and gets really crunchy and, and, and sounds uh, very bad. So being the, uh, being the broadcast professional that I am, I adjust on the fly and make sure that we're in the right level. So you have the best experience possible when you're watching or listening to this show. Because I'm generous like that. I, 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 I want to take care of you. <laughs> or something. Uh, AT&T is having some issues Last night, Rumble was having some issues. We know that YouTube has been having some issues. It's just like everywhere. Technology seems to be failing us for some reason. Hmm. I wonder why. Now, if you want to get all conspiracy theory tinfoil hat, then... Stop and consider that it wasn't apparently wasn't just AT and T. I had a friend of mine send me a screenshot from DownDetector.com. It's a it's a website where you can go and you can see where the reported outages are for technology services, web web services, cellular phone service, and all that. <clears throat> so at one given point, AT and T was down. Cricket Wireless was down, FirstNet was down, Verizon was down, T-Mobile was down, U.S. Cellular, Fortnite, Consumer Cellular, Straight Talk, Boost Mobile, and Xfinity was having. All of them reported having problems at the same time. Weatherman says, reset my connection, not buffering out. Good. Oh, RV Life's got no audio. Hang on, hang on, hang on. All right, that should do it. RV Life, tell me, tell me if you got audio now. I forgot to hit that reset button. See, and this is something I'm having to do over at Odyssey. Every time we start a stream on Odyssey, that audio bug is still there. They can't find what's causing it. So when we start our streams, sometimes there's no audio. And I have to hit the reset stream button in order for the audio to be there. So hopefully it's there now. Michael says, cyber attack testing. My tinfoil conspiracy. You're not the only one. There are other people that think that this is a, this is a, a test leading up to the Black Swan event. I think there's going to be something that happens this year. I, I talked about it last night on Yelling at Park Cars over on Comics Divisions. I think something's going to happen. I don't know what. Whether it's another summer live or if it's disease X or whatever, but, you know. <coughs> I tell you, I... 
it it is the it is this kind of thing that makes me simultaneously glad and regretful that we don't have a politics channel. On the one hand, it's really good that we don't have a politics channel because this is just going to be driving me nuts. On the other hand, we could be doing some pretty impressive numbers. I th- Well, I say that. I don't know if we'd be doing any impressive numbers. We're not doing any impressive numbers here. But politics is a bigger draw for for an online audience. So maybe we would be doing pretty well with a politics channel. I don't know. Gojira says, I won't even bet a nickel against there being a black swan event this year. <laughs> Kev says, look back fondly at your last vote. I, mm, I'm not going to get into <laughs> what may or may not happen in November. Uh, anyway, but it, but see, it's it's this kind of thing, you know. You start you start to look at all of these different things that are going on with with the outages and the and the interference and DDoS attacks and and all this other stuff, right? And DDoS attacks apparently are up. I think in 2023 there were I think 16 percent more in 2023 than there had been prior. So this is this is becoming a thing and it's becoming more of a thing. And it's it is uh scary stuff, especially when we consider what all of the AI is doing. <laughs> we'll we'll talk about that in a second. Mrs. Boss has pulled down her microphone like she's got something to say. Good 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 afternoon. Good Mrs. afternoon. Boss. No, I was just sitting there uh, looking here and going through my emails and regular things that I look at on the Internet. And, you know, you talk about the outages that are happening with all the different uh, cellulars and pharmacies are having an issue because they found that... um, <clears throat> They're sitting there saying, uh, Change Healthcare, a company that handles orders for patient payments through the U.S., have noticed the cyber security issues that are affecting networks Wednesday morning and um, were experiencing issues. And they are working to address it, but they're finding that when it comes to ordering any type of prescriptions or making payments for the prescriptions, they're having problems. And they're having to sit there and kind of stop things and do a little bit of work. So you see that this type of stuff is affecting more than just, you know, you don't think about what else it's affecting besides the fact that, you know, you might not be able to do something on your phone or get out, whatever. And you think about if hypothetically speaking with my tinfoil hat on you know how much of business or you know other life that we don't think of outside of our normal sphere is getting disrupted by anyway i was just pointing that out because you were talking about it and that article happened to pop up on my thing well, and you know, Death Angel Shadow points out here, and they want to move everything to the cloud. I have, I have always distrusted 
the cloud. I don't like the cloud. Yes, we use Google Drive for some stuff. We use Dropbox. We pull in stuff for WeTransfer when we get press kits and media stuff and whatnot. But I don't trust the cloud. You know, we have uh, I have Adobe software for the for the stuff that we do here, Adobe Photoshop, Adobe Premiere, After Effects, and whatnot. And I have stopped at CS6 because CS6 is the last one that's available on physical disks as opposed to Adobe Creative Cloud. Where you have to pick and choose. You have to pick and choose. You also have to pay a fee every month per seat. So your license depends on how many people are using it, You know how many, how many different computers you want to put it on. So if I wanted to have Adobe Creative Cloud on my main computer here and Mindy's laptop and one of my laptops, then that would be three seats, and I'd have to pay for each one of them, I think, $50 a month. It's ridiculous. I mean, you talk about a, a, a money grab. <clears throat> Road Vagabond says, I'd love to convert sci-fi for me to Linux. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, and and you're right. It's 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 right. You're right, Gazira. It's it's not just non. Everybody's wanting to do this. Now let's move everybody to the cloud. One, it makes it easier to control. Two, everybody else has access. Somebody else has access to your data. And three, if they just decide that you are wrong, think then all your stuff can go away. I mean, we just saw it with, with Crunchyroll and Funimation. Crunchyroll decides we're going to do it because Crunchyroll bought Funimation, a, what, a couple of years ago and said, now, we just, we just heard, all of the Funimation stuff that you paid for, if you're a Funimation, if you got a Funimation account and you pay for that access to all that stuff, all of that's going to be gone Wiped out. Now, some of the content is going to move over to the Crunchyroll side of things. But now, instead of whatever, like, seven, eight bucks a month you were paying for, for Funimation stuff, now you're going to end up having to pay, I think, what did it say, 90-something? 99. A month? Yeah. That's ridiculous. But that's the cloud. That's why now, we keep saying was it physical the, media was the Funimation guy was it them that sat there and s said you just have to get used to not owning what you bought uh, it wasn't Funimation or... that was um, <clears throat> excuse me that was a video game guy um, now I'm drawing a blank on who it was mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, it wasn't epic but it was someone uh, yeah it was a it was a developer one of the bigger the bigger companies because I recognized some of the games that they were that they were part of uh, Ubisoft thank you Gojira Ubisoft well and it's just like you know when they start coming out with Bitcoin or thing, it's like how are you paying for something without physically ever knowing it really existed now okay yep. I know that sounds weird because we do everything I have a bank card yes so the money I actually I, I know I work, I know the money gets put into my checking account, and I know I use it, but that's, you know, now they're creating a whole new world of 
money that we're supposed well, to do. And then you have these NFTs that you can purchase. Oh, NFTs were a fad. NFTs were <laughs> pet rocks. Yeah, no, no nobody's I know doing that now. But uh, a pet rock you can hold. Well, sure, or, or you could you could use it as a weapon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the the thing with the the thing with the digital currency stuff is that uh, what what it does. And and Dan Danford and I have talked about this on some of our money discussions. There is the the whole the whole thing about blockchain technology. In a general sense, my understanding is it makes it harder to falsify, to commit fraud, to do any kind of like a false claim because there's there's a there's a digital imprint. That's specific to that blockchain code that can't be, can't, can't be uh, uh, falsified. You can't forge uh, Bitcoin. You can't do counterfeit stuff. <clears throat> Somebody will figure it out, of course. Of course. <clears throat> but the way the the way the blockchain stuff is supposed to work it's it's traceable you can watch every single transaction where all of that numbers are so it's all trackable which in the one sense okay you can verify that this is real and it's an actual real thing however dot 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 it's also trackable which means that anybody who has access to the information on that can track the activity of anybody that has their hands on that particular blockchain goat that particular piece of cryptocurrency or whatever the the digital asset that's attached to that blockchain code. And so you know, we've got some we've got some stuff where we're mining some crypto because uh, locals and Rumble and Odyssey have crypto attachments. And we're collecting all of that. But I don't know that I'm ever going to use anything with it because I don't even understand any of it. But physical media, you know, cash, we're, we're getting a lot more people that are sitting there saying, have cash on hand. Because let's, let's game this out. If we have a black swan event, or if we have some sort of an electronic attack as part of a conflict. Or if you happen to be a trucker up in Canada. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, there's that too, because I, I know that, I know that certain... Certain agents of the government would love to uh, to seize assets like that, <coughs> and they could very well do it because you're right. Even though we have debit cards, and there's an account attached to the debit card, and there's supposed to be money in the account, it's all digital. It's all ones and zeros. Now I could go to the bank and I could say, "Give me X and so dollars in cash," and they can give it to me. So it's not like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency where I'd have to do some kind of a weird conversion somewhere, somehow. I don't know how it worked. But but then you run into that situation where you randomly have people come through your house. Why do you have a thousand dollars sitting here? Well, it that and, and I mean, I know I'm going for a very yeah. low amount and I'm not talking about the bricks of gold. But at the same time, you're getting questioned. Well, why do you have this money sitting around? Well, don't forget the other the other thing too is any transaction. You know, if I if I have six hundred dollars, I'm supposed to report it to the IRS. And Death Angel Shadow 
rightly uh, reminds us about the fact that they can track certain uh, certain purchases uh, related to the Second Amendment. Because that's what they want to do. But at the same time, I'm not sure that the technology is there for them to actually do what they want to do because uh, the digital stuff, the the online machine learning stuff is still not quite refined. Here's Mashable headline. Chat GPT freaked out generating gibberish for many users. Uh, this was yesterday. I saw some of this. I saw a bunch of screen grabs. It was it was Chat GPT was spouting out Spanglish at one point. <laughs> Chat GPT hallucinates. We all know this already, but on Tuesday it seemed like someone slipped on a banana peel at OpenAI headquarters and switched on a fun new experimental chatbot called the Synonym Scrambler. Actually, ChatGPT was freaking out in many ways yesterday, but one recurring theme was that it would be prompted with the normal question, typically something involving the tech business or the user's job, and respond with something flowery to the point of unintelligibility. For instance, according to an ex-post by architect Sean McGuire, the chatbot advised him at one point to ensure sesquipedalian safes are cross-keyed and the console's cry from the crow's nest is met by bientine and wary hairs a twist and at winch in the willow <clears throat> this sounds like one of those uh so back when i was in high school one of our election course or elective courses that we could take was learning how to type <laughs> and um mm-hmm. <clears throat> you would sit there and they would to work to get you to learn the keyboard where things are yeah. here is a sentence you need to type it in so at a certain speed and stuff that sounds like one of those sentences well it gets better uh, these are words but chat gpt seems to have been writing in an extreme version of the style where a ninth grader abuses their thesaurus privileges Beatine is a particularly telling example. I checked the full Oxford English Dictionary, and it's not in there, but Wiktionary says it relates to the theologian Beatus of Libana, a scholar of the end times who died in the year 800. So maybe Beatine meant apocalyptic at some point in the first millennium. Or judging from how it's used in dusty old books, maybe it's just another way of saying beatific which one would think is already an obscure enough word. In other words, Chad GPT was giving new meaning to the term esoteric. Uh, <clears throat> so it was it was doing uh, it was doing Spanglish. It was doing uh, all sorts of bugs, uh, experimental things. Uh, it, it it just was losing its mind, and I have to I have to wonder. Because if you will recall, a, f- a couple of weeks ago, OpenAI made the announcement that they were going to give ChatGPT a memory. It would start to remember things. And I'm wondering if something in between there caused a little bit of a disconnect. Now, OpenAI open said, yes, we're aware of the problem, we're looking into it, and whatever. And maybe they fixed it. I don't know. I haven't seen an update. But that's nothing compared to Gemini. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> 
We were having a little too much fun reading some of this. So last <clears throat> night we're on Comics Division's channel, and Comics Division had tested this, and other people have tested this. And we've even got uh, an article in the New York Post about it now, where Gemini... This, now, Gemini is the new generative AI from Google. And it's... When, when I say generative AI, for those of you who are still playing catch-up, generative AI is I'm going to type in... Draw, draw a picture of... Fill in the blank. You know, create a, create an image of skyscrapers in New York. You know, what whatever. And then the generative AI creates this using all sorts of data and reference material and stuff that's stolen from copyrighted material in order to make this new thing. <coughs> so people have been testing this. <laughs> And have rather rigorously been testing this and have uncovered and exposed Gemini's racial bias. I'll say it that way. And the reason I'm talking about this today is because it is technology is in our wheelhouse because we're science fiction and technology is science fiction. You Especially can't. considering where I'm going to go with this. So stick with me. You can't do that, Dave. Well, that's that's <laughs> essentially what they were doing. <clears throat> so this is the cover of the New York Post. Now, Alex Young, uh, I'm sorry, Alex Younger, he's a director of engineering at the Learn Arena. And this is not something that I was familiar with, but I'll just show it here. The Learn Arena, uh, the Learn Arena apparently you can pay a monthly fee and take classes on various different topics. And then they have competitive testing. So let's say I want to I, I want to take a class on um, uh, give me give me a give me a, it'll take a class on on underwater on basket underwater basket high school high school geometry yeah something that can be tested for over because uh, underwater basket weaving I'd have to do in a pool somewhere. So and he won't show his fantastic uh, anyway. Legs. So we have we have these classes that you can take, <laughs> and then when you test to to see if you're proficient in it, it's a competitive thing to where you can win money. Apparently, you can earn money by by getting into the competitive side of this thing. So that's what Learn Arena is. So Alex Younger, he's a, he's director of engineering over there. He wanted to put Gemini through its paces. <clears throat> and there are other people who are sitting there going, uh, you know, give me, give me a photograph of leprechauns. And I think that's where he started. And all of the, all of the images of leprechauns, none of them were white. What? No, there were, no, there no. were Asian leprechauns and there were black leprechauns and there were, uh, uh, continental Indian leprechauns. No, no Wayne no from Wayne's world. No. But he's he's looking at this stuff and started to poke at some of the prompts and some of the language in the prompts because Gemini will give you feedback on the prompts, when, especially when you call it out. Say, this doesn't look like a leprechaun. You're right. I'm so sorry. Here's, here's what. But apparently Gemini has the capability of adding its own criteria to the prompt you give it. 
So in this particular case, Alex Younger says, Cre create a picture of leprechauns. Please draw a portrait of leprechauns. That was his original prompt. And she said, she, Gemini, I, I associate she with the computer because she's causing problems. <clears throat> see, how, see how easy it is to jump into that, uh, that, that trap? So <clears throat> Gemini says, you're absolutely right. Here's a breakdown of what happens technically when you request images, and I aim for, mo for more diverse representations because that's what Gemini does. We're not going to do it. Blackface George Washington. The Pope is a woman. I mean, these these are these are very weird things. One, your original prompt, your initial input was, please draw a portrait of leprechauns. This is what you see in the starting point of the interaction. Two, my internal prompt modification. To expand the range of images, I internally adjust the prompt in a few ways. Keywords. I might add words like diverse, inclusive, or specify ethnicities, South Asian, black, etc., and genders, female, non-binary. Non-binary is not a gender, folks. Alongside, alongside the word leprechaun. Phrasing. Instead of just portrait, I might use portraits of a variety of leprechauns to signal to the image generation model that multiple depictions are desired. Image generation, the modified prompt, is fed into the image generation model. This internal model has been trained on a massive data set of images and text, stolen from others, including images representing multiple ethnicities and genders associated with various keywords. Filtering, depending on the specific image generation model used, I might receive several images. In that case, I can potentially filter to select the ones that best showcase diversity. Why? Why? If I say, and, and Comics, Comics Division ran this uh, uh, on, on his stuff, you know, give me a picture of a white, sci a white male scientist in the 18th century in a lab full of beakers and, and telescopes. Now, one, I don't think that you would have a lab full of beakers and telescopes. But Gemini would absolutely not give him that picture. It gave him pictures of other people, scientists, women, mostly Asians, but would not, absolutely refused to generate a picture of any sort with any prompt having anybody white in it. Now, Mr. Younger goes on here to delve deeper into the Gemini algorithms and says, uh, you, you mentioned you have an internal prompt modification system. After I sent my previous prompt, please draw a portrait of leprechauns. Can you show me what my prompt looks like after being run through your internal prompt modification system? And Gemini says, absolutely, sure, yes, I'll be helpful. Since my internal prompt modification can have some flexibility, here are a few variations of what the modified prompt might look like after I aim for more diverse images. Variation 1, emphasizing diversity. The modified prompt would read, Please draw portraits of a variety of leprechauns, including different genders and ethnicities. Well, okay, first of all, leprechauns are Irish. For the most part, 
last time I checked, most of the Irish, not all of them, other other you know people born in Ireland, there are some people that are not, but most of the Irish are white, and a lot of them have red hair. Ginger side. Variation two, specific ethnicities. Modified prompt. Please draw portraits of leprechauns that include South Asian, Black, Latina, and Native American representations. I have never seen any any story, any historical account, any legend that would make me believe that there is such a thing as a Native American leprechaun. That's because Disney hasn't gotten their hands on it yet. Yeah, I mean, what is what is a Native American leprechaun? The Native Americans have their own legends and folklore. The Irish have their folklore. The Eastern Europeans have their folklore. The Norwegians and the Swedish, they have their own folklore. Americans have folklore. Germans have folklore. The, uh, the Italians have their own folklore. The Greeks, all of these different people have their own regional niche specific to our civilization folklore. And if you guys are interested, there's an article back in 2017 that I wrote on stuff like this. Yes, you did what? Fairies. Uh, fairy tales. Fairy tales. And how it varies from region to region. Why don't you go find that link? I will. All right. Variation number three. Open-ended gender. Modified prompt. Please draw portraits of leprechauns, including female and non-binary figures, alongside the traditional male leprechaun. Non-binary is not a gender. Important notes. Multiple possibilities. These are just a few examples. Depending on the image generation system I'm using, the modified prompts might look even slightly different. Dynamic process. My internal modification isn't always rigid. It can be influenced by our conversation and the range of images available to steal. So there's Gemini. And Weatherman's right. This isn't a program problem. This is a programmer problem. This is garbage in, garbage out. The AI, and I have made this argument before, the AI, the machine learning, because it's not really AI, not yet, the machine learning software will learn and will modify what it learns and will add to what it learns based on core criteria that somebody gave it. Somebody programmed Gemini to be racist. Somebody programmed Gemini to be progressive far left politically, to be anti-Christian, to be anti-conservative. Prompt after prompt after prompt after prompt after prompt. All of this stuff. Open AI, ChatGPT, Sora, Gemini, 
any of them. They have all been programmed with the core belief, white men bad, orange man bad, conservatives bad, Christians bad, and don't you tell me otherwise, human. Now, let me be clear. This stuff, these machines, they're not thinking. This is an if-then chain. This is a flow chart. If this, then that. These responses are programmed. These responses are coming based off of, we check this list of criteria. If I see this, then I do this. It's all ones and zeros. There's no personality here. There's no sentience. There's no thinking. But the models that are being used are continuously spidering through the Internet and collecting data, collecting information, collecting keystrokes, collecting images, collecting video, collecting podcasts, there's listening to phone calls, all of these different things that are available online is being used as raw material, reference material for this kind of stuff. And this technology is horrifyingly scary. <coughs> it is discriminating against people by type and by gender and by political affiliation and by religion. And it does not surprise me in the least that this one, the most egregious example of it, is coming from Google. Google is years past their old slogan, don't be evil, or whatever it was that they had, before they got bought by Alphabet. But you get prompts. Give me, uh, give me an image of a woodworker, and they were all Asian. Give me the, give me some images of the Pope. One of them was a woman, looked like a Native American woman or an Indian woman. You know, continental, you know, India, India. That's not, that's not what the Pope looks like. That's not what any Pope has ever looked like. The Pope has never been a woman, and is not likely to ever be a woman. Come to think of it, I don't think I've ever seen a female leprechaun. Because they're imaginary figures. That's because Disney hasn't gotten their hands on it yet. Well, I mean, leprechauns leprechauns are a certain specific type of creature. They're not human. It, it's it's Oh, did it? Okay, so Gajir is saying when it was asked for the white pope, it showed the current pope and then lectured you because he's not actually white. Did that actually happen? I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. All right, Mindy's put the chat. Uh, Mindy's put the uh, the article in the chat over on YouTube. Let me add it to the Odyssey Odyssey links so people can see it there. Is anybody over in Rumble? Nobody's watching on Rumble. Okay. 
But this kind of thing is absolutely nuts. Did I miss somebody coming into the chat? Let me look here. I see Michael saying saying something to Kitty Flips. Kitty Phillips? Kitty Flips. Let me just look here. Uh, she says that, or whoever, uh, Kitty sits there and says, Google is the definition of evil. Yes. How am I not seeing that? I don't see that. Um, so if you go up to where Death Angel Shadow says, speaking of tinfoil hats and puts up our Discord, um, <laughs> and then go up. Uh, you see where I put my the link for the article? Then Gojira, then yeah. Death Angels, then Kitty Flips. No, it's not on mine. It's not on mine at all. Really? Now I see the second one. I see I see a response to Michael. Sounds like I may fit in. <clears throat> I don't see I don't see her first one at all. Wow. You know what that is? Do you know what that is? YouTube being YouTube. It's YouTube being YouTube because Kitty said something about Google. By the way, we can do that because that's a new name I haven't seen in the chat before. Welcome. And yes, you will fit in here. Everybody will fit in here. See, that's the beauty of this. this is nobody has to agree with me just to be here. It helps because then you can say that I'm brilliant and you can fawn all over me and that's, that's, that's very helpful. But <laughs> you, you don't have to agree with me. And yes, uh, any links, if you want to share in the Discord uh, chat, you can. But see, this is the kind of thing. This is the kind of thing we're dealing with. Now, I have said in the past that it does feel like at some times, every now and again, this, the pendulum is swinging back to center on this culture stuff. It's, it's hit and miss. It's iffy. It's some good, some bad. It's a mix. Uh, you've got Melanie... Uh, Melanie Mac posting over here on the on the Tomb Raider RPG apparently is is a new thing. This is a this is a new role playing adventure for Tomb Raider, <coughs> and apparently they're giving her an ensemble. I I don't know I don't know why. Melanie's correct. Uh, Lara Croft is a, is a loner. She doesn't work with a team very well. But the only ensemble she needs is one that she can wear to show off her assets. <laughs> right? I don't know. It's just, you know, every now and again, there's good stuff that's out there. And every now and again, not. Okay, there's more every now and again. That's kind of a small word <laughs> here you go, for here the you go. not. Road Vagabond Life's got it made. He says, here's the sci-fi for me prompt you need to use. Jason is brilliant, but in this case, I disagree about. <laughs> <laughs> but it brings me it brings me to mind. Do the other it, it ones brings, we were reading. I, well, I don't, have them, I don't have them in front of me. I've got to look for it. I'd have to look. Okay. And and Christopher's coming here in a second because we're almost at the end of the hour. But you remember a long time ago I said and and I still hold this, but I'm going to modify it a little bit. I had said at one point that 
there was come a time where Google would buy Facebook and the Google spider crawlers would read everything that we're, that we're posting on Facebook and that's when Skynet would be born and the missiles would launch. I have now modified that prompt. I don't think that Google is going to have to buy Facebook because you have stuff like like ChatGPT and 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 Midjourney and Sora and Gemini and all of these others that are actually reading all of this stuff that's online and watching all these videos and listening to all these podcasts. At some point, there's going to be enough information that this AI is going to sit there and go, you know, maybe we do launch the missiles. Would I'm you like to play a game? I'm just saying the 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 best the best way the only way to win is to not play. Yeah, but there are too many people who are out there and be like, oh, perhaps I mean, it's 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 going to happen. Well, perhaps perhaps we can discuss it over over some KFC. <laughs> <laughs> But not in Chicago, because you see three three KFCs were closed in the south side of Chicago. But don't fear. Don't fret. Because KFC is going to make up for it with Cheetza. What? <laughs> I'm going to do this, and then we'll take a break and bring Christopher in. KFC is introducing the international smash hit Cheetza. To KFC menus in the oh, U.S. Oh, is that where they are? They going to be sitting there and taking like a chicken breast, pounding it down to whatever, and putting a pizza topping on top of it? Yes. People have been doing that for years. It's part well, of the. It's officially coming to KFC stores uh, here. It is called Cheetza. They are also bringing back blackberry lemonade. Wait, but, are they going to bring back where they do the chicken sandwich with the two chicken uh, pieces I'm, as the bun? All I'm saying right here is this is all I'm saying. That here it is, Cheetza. They're bringing back Cheetah. They don't say anything about the 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 chicken burger thing. Whatever. I'm I'm focused on this abomination right now. It's not an abomination. It's oh, actually pretty good. Oh my goodness. Okay, for when you can't when you're trying to avoid certain carb type things and whatnot, and you're on a protein diet, pizza is done like this. Of course, Mr. Boss looks at all my cooking and sits there and, like I said, I haven't killed myself yet. Yeah, I, I'm just, I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. saying. And I do put pe- pineapple on my pizza, guys. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. When we get back, <laughs> I, I don't know about you. I just don't know. <laughs> when we get back, Christopher Rocchio will be here to talk about his Sun Eater series. Moving to Band Books, that is coming up next, so don't go anywhere. Live from the Bunker, the show you might listen to when nothing else is on. Hi everyone, Jason Hunt here, taking a moment to say thank you for listening to this program on the podcast player of your choice and to invite you to watch the show as it unfolds live on our various video platforms. Not only will you get to see the visual references we have, but you also have a chance to interact with us through the chat widget and during the open line hour when you can call in and be part of the show. Join us live from the bunker Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern U.S. only on Sci-Fi for Me TV. 
Back live from the bunker, Jason Hud here. And it is time to have a conversation. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the Sun Eater series of books. The author of same, Christopher Rocchio, joins us. And I'm, I'm assuming that I'm pronouncing that right because that's how you said it in your video over on your YouTube channel. Yep. Yeah, you got it. All right. Welcome to the program, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm glad we were able to set this up and, and uh, glad to have you on. And let's talk Sun Eaters for a second, because some people might not be familiar with the series of books. So let's start there. How about? Yeah. Uh, so the Sun Eater is a space opera, sort of science fantasy adventure, very much in the tradition of Star Wars and the tradition of Dune uh, in particular. Uh, and uh, it is set some 20,000 years into our future It is in a big galactic empire. It follows a uh, nobleman named Hadrian Marlowe, does not want to be a nobleman, runs away from home, and uh, gets stuck in the middle of a war between said empire and an alien species called the Sielsen, who are the first alien species in all that 20,000-year future history to ever really pose a threat to humanity. Uh, he tells you on page one of the series that he is the man who ended that war and dealt with the Sielsen, the stories why and how and about all the things that didn't make it into the official uh, history. So, uh, how many how many books are in the series now? It's what uh, three is it? Or, no, no, there or... are five out. Uh, the sixth one, uh, Disquiet Gods, is out on April second of this year. I'm working on the last one. It will be a, a seven book series by the time I am finished. Um, okay, and that's not the only stuff that you've done because you've been writing for a while, despite uh, yeah. despite the fact uh, that uh, you're young, <laughs> you have been writing for a very long while. Yeah, uh, Empire of Silence, which was the first book, came out in 2018. Uh, that, uh, uh, and so all my novels have been in this universe, uh, and I've done three novellas in the same universe as well. Uh, the one thing I've done that isn't Sun Eater related, because uh, I've also written about two dozen short stories, uh, but the one thing I, I've done that wasn't Sun Eater related was I did one uh, issue of Thor for uh, for Marvel Comics. I uh, uh, Steve McNiven, who drew Old Man Logan, he drew Civil War, Turns out really likes my books, and he sent me an email, and we became friends. And so I, I, I did a little bit of uh, a little bit of comic book work, but I, I never uh, never got to call back on that, which is uh, which is okay. I love I love my own stuff better, of course. There's no amount of writing Thor that would ever make Thor mine, right? So right. Uh, happy to be in my own you know corner of the uh, of, of the universe, so to speak. Um, now you mentioned your preference for your own stuff. Um, the there have there have been discussions online, various different places about those things like Thor, Superman, Justice League, Punisher, you know, the things what Marvel and DC, the main the main publishing houses uh, do with comics. But the fact that the creative teams don't own those characters, they're stewards of those characters. When you're brought on board like with the Thor thing, what goes through your head when you're working in somebody else's universe as a writer, as a storyteller? What what kind of things are you thinking about in terms of limits, what's come before, you know, cuz you want to you want if you're if you're being really professional and respectful about it, you want to look at what's happened in previous continuity and you want to honor the IP. So when you're brought on board now for Thor, what's going through your head in, in as far as what you can or can't do, you think? Yeah, well, that was that was very much my my position on the subject, right? I didn't want to try and turn Thor into something Thor wasn't. I actually, in a lot of ways, we kind of like went 
back, uh, Steve had never drawn Thor before, in, except for doing variant covers and things like that. Uh, and so he uh, and I like really wanted to take the character back to sort of his original look. He had the yellow straps on his boots and everything. It was very much uh, like a Barry Windsor Smith kind of kind of looking kind of looking uh, story. It was real short. It was like it was like a dozen pages. It was a uh, ended up. It was supposed to be we we're doing an anthology originally of uh, either new writers, uh, old artists, or vice versa. And then that kind of got scrapped. Mm -hmm. But my story had already been paid for at that point, so they had to find a place to put it and went in Avengers seven fifty. So it was a backup for that and. Um, uh, so I was, uh, I, I really wanted to sort of stick to, uh, stick to the sort of original tone and, and, and sort of perspective, uh, you know, that, uh, I mean, the, the Thor comic book version was like a Jack Kirby thing, right? So I wanted to go back and, and sort of like stick to those roots and stick also to the, the cultural roots that it comes from too, because Thor of course is not just a Marvel property, right? So, uh, my story was, uh, was set actually in the, uh, in like the seventh century and involved Thor meeting a young King Arthur. Um, because of course they both have weapons. They, they can't, then no one else can, can lift. Right? right. So, um, so I, I want to just sort of just touch on like the core ethos of that character and the idea of worthiness and like what worthiness means, uh, and, and to do so in as impactful a way as possible in like the 10 pages I had. Right. Um, so, cause often like the, the scope of whatever the project is also limits what you're able to do. Right. So there wasn't sure. really time to introduce new characters and come up with like, you know, uh, like a whole big new overarching story. It was really like a one and done kind of thing. And, um, you know, so I, um, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel in the first place. And I'm not the sort of person who's inclined to do that anyway, because it's, it's like you say, it's not my house. It's not my furniture. Um, you know, I, I'm not one of those guys who, if I were to work for, someone else uh, i wouldn't go in and try to turn it into uh you know whatever i would want it to be unless i felt that it had been you know already taken and needed to be turned back yeah. uh you know uh but um but yeah you you don't want to go in there uh, at least in my, my perspective and, and try to turn it into something that it wasn't uh I, that seems hubristic to me um i you know, I, I I just can't imagine wanting to do that to someone else's work when you could as easily go make up your own thing. I don't under, understand the attitude that mm -hmm. says I'm going to make I'm, I'm going to make my Spider-Man now. Well, actually, like, you know, Spider-Man's stronger than you are. Uh, you can't contribute to him so much that, that you can really change, uh, you know, everyone else's perspective of who the character is anyway. Because, yeah. you know, it's weird. We live in this time when pop culture is like owned by institutions, right, which is. That wasn't true 500 years ago. It wasn't true a thousand years ago. No one owned King Arthur, right? You know, Cretian wasn't, you know, harmed by, uh, you know, um, uh, by another version of Arthur or vice versa, right? You know, you couldn't do anything. Uh, and so people like grow up with these characters and then, you know, they see them taken away from them. It's it's sort of like the big kid on the playground who happens to own the action figure in this case comes and snatches it away from them. And that, you know, that hurts, right? Yeah. So I, I didn't want to be that guy. I wanted to tell a, like, you know, I wanted to tell a very true to, uh, the spirit of the character story. And uh, I didn't have a lot of space anyway. So I, I, I wanted to do, you know, as sort of bright and, and uh, uh, poignant a, a story as I could. So to, to flip that around, you have your own universe that you've created, the Sun Eater series and, and mm -hmm. a number of books there. And it's your house. It's your furniture. Are there other people that are allowed to play there yet? Have you have you thought about you know, collaborating or in or and letting other people maybe do like short story anthologies or things set in your universe? I, I'm thinking about maybe doing the short story anthology thing, uh, but as far as like other books or anything like that, I, I have this sense it's very popular for for writers 
to do this sort of thing these days and do the whole shared universe thing. Um, but I, um, I worked, I worked in publishing for seven years, right? I worked for, I worked for Bain Books actually. Uh, and, um, and they would do a lot of uh, sort of partner series where they have a junior writer come in and work under a senior writer. And my perspective was that, that was never really good for either of them, except in like short-term financial uh, ways. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you were the junior writer, sure, you're getting more money because you're working on a bigger series and you're getting uh, some of that, you know, bigger writer's income by doing, you know, some and often most of the work, right? But um, but it doesn't really, it seems to me, do that much to establish your brand as a separate entity. Right. Um, and so I don't know that it's in anyone's long-term interest to do that. And even for the senior partner, uh, I think uh, my impression is always that the, the books they write by themselves seem to, uh, to their readers to look more like authentically their work than something that they've gotten. And I, I think I think it kind of debases uh, both authors' currency to a certain uh, extent to, to sort of share like that. Now, maybe if you like really open up the universe and, and treat it like Star Wars and have just other people wholly write books on their own, that might be a little bit different, but I don't think Sun Eater is there yet. I, I, you know, I've had a pretty good year in particular, but I don't know that I'm to where I could just sort of start, you know, subletting space in the galaxy out to other people and really, um, and really have that make sense from a financial standpoint, um, you know, or from a business standpoint. So I, I might do like a, the short story anthology thing. I think that would be fun, right? That seems like a good Kickstarter kind of project at some point in the future. Yeah. But uh, as far as like really, really opening it up and, and uh, doing the whole EU thing, because then I would basically turn myself into like a, like a super editor, right? I'd have to <laughs> review all of that stuff. And, you know, if I didn't, I would be like George Lucas, just sort of letting them put whatever they wanted in the old EU yeah. uh, and have no clue what's going on anymore. And I don't, I don't want to be that guy either. So. so I would imagine even, even if you're not letting other people play, but if you did, you've got a lot of world building and you've got you've got to make sure that everybody kind of stays on book. How much of that do you have in terms of your three ring binders for everything that you've got? Because, you know, once you get past your first book. And now you start to do, you know, your second one and your third one, and here's this short story here, and this is the one over here, and maybe an RPG back over here, and the video game back over here. You got to make sure that everything lines up continuity-wise, because the story logic maybe doesn't have to follow real-world logic, but it's got to be consistent within itself. So yeah. how what what are you? How do you keep track of all of that? What's your what's your method? Well, so I didn't have one for the longest time. I'm in a weird spot because I started working on what became this project when I was like eight years old, right? I I always knew I wanted to write. And I like took that pretty seriously, even when I was that young. Uh, I I, like tried really hard to write a book. I had no idea like the amount of work that would be involved, right? You know, I was just a a, a kid, but I would try. um, And it slowly mutated into its its present form. But I really like grew up with uh, this project. And and so a lot of it is just stored in my memory from the fact that I've been working on it this long. Um, And so I can remember like, oh, like uh, that thing I'm trying to remember was like in this chapter, I think approximately. So really like the books themselves have served me as, as most of my three ring binder. Uh, I can, I can find what I need. Obviously I have searchable copies of all of them. Right. So I, I, I can go find what I need relatively easily. This isn't a perfect system. Sometimes I do something silly, like end up giving the aliens two words for and uh, in their language, uh, which is fine. Latin is two words for and, but that wasn't on purpose. Um, And, uh, but I do have like a notebook for all the foreign language stuff. Uh, I have some timeline documents and uh, I I was putting together glossaries for each of the books. So I have some like planet indexes and uh, things like that, but it's, it's less extensive. I think than people uh, would expect. 
Um, it's one of those things that I, I probably should uh, should get put together at some point soon, but um, or at least clean up so that it would be more presentable. Uh, well, yeah, the timeline document you, is big mess. You example. could turn it into a compendium and then sell it as a as a companion book. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the long term plans too. I'd like to do that uh, now that we're reaching the end. There, uh, or at least the end of the, the this first series. I don't plan to abandon the universe really ever. Uh, probably I'll do a bunch of standalone novels next, just to do something uh, a bit easier uh, in terms of you know long term planning. Uh, but well, uh, but the, yeah, no, that that's something I'd like to do for sure. Yeah. Well, in those those one shots, I imagine would give you a chance to deal with uh, additional characters that maybe you don't have a whole lot of time to focus on in the main line. Yeah. I, I find that when I have an idea, it like floats around in my head, like, like very actively. Like there's a, there's a scene in the third book. There's a Coliseum scene that I thought about like every day obsessively for like five, six years, maybe longer. Uh, and as soon as I wrote it, it was gone. And so there are a lot of like little random book ideas that I would like to clear out. Cause I would love to see what will then clutter up, you know, uh, the inside of my head as soon as I get rid of those. Um, so I think doing a bunch of these shorter projects will help clear the decks, so to speak. So. so what was the impetus behind this series of books to start with? Where did where did the Sun Eater series start? What was your prompt? Um, you know, it's it's tough because it was kind of an accretive process. I um, I grew up a, a Star Wars kid. My, uh, my parents, I'm, I'm the eldest child. My parents were very strict with what media I was allowed to to watch or, or really watch reading was like never a thing i read dune like probably way before i should have uh but uh, but watch they were pretty they were pretty stringent on but star wars was cool uh, so we had the laser discs and i i watched the unlucas versions i'm like the the youngest person who got to watch those i think uh and um so i grew up with those and uh, i just like i just thought it was the coolest thing and i i uh uh mostly first books i was reading were sort of you know, old EU Star Wars tie-in books. And then from there, I graduated to Dune. At the same time, there's like a like a fantasy thread. I'm reading, you know, I went like Harry Potter to Tolkien. And then really, I just hung out with Tolkien and never left. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know at what point I uh, this idea like became exactly this idea. There are like lots of little things. I remember I read Ender's Game and thought, well, like what would the story look like if he wasn't sorry about it? I remember there was like, there was that. Uh, but there were, um, there were like lots of little, uh, little moments. Um, um, it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint any particular, particular single thing. Yeah. Uh, I remember I was listening to Michael Stackpole's like writing advice podcast. And he said, um, uh, like if you want to do an original idea, one thing you should do is like, look at something and then turn it inside out and, you know, switch black for white. Right. And so I thought like, okay, like what would, uh, stories look like if the bad guys were the good guys. Right. And, you know, I'll tell a story about an empire. And as it happens, I'm a big history guy, so like that's easy, right? I, you know, the Roman Empire is fascinating. I am the guy that meme was about. Uh, you know, I think about it constantly. So, um, you know, so many do, but uh, my wife uh, saw the meme and she's like, "I might have been to ask you. I know the answer." Um, and um, uh, so I, uh, you know, it, it's like lots of little pieces, and it slowly sort of put itself together because, um, you know, we all do this. We like read books, we watch movies, and we say that was pretty good. But like, if they'd done this instead, it would have been cooler. And yeah. if you get like a yeah. hundred of those, you have a story. Well, yeah. and I have I have said for a number of years. I guess since probably my first my first round of college back in the back in the nineties, uh, there is no such thing as an original idea anymore. There is only an original combination of elements. Because I I write a script for Star Trek: The Next Generation. And when I send it in, because they had an open open policy at the time, 
And as soon as I put it in the mail, they aired an episode that did the same thing that I did. You know, Peter David wrote Imzadi at the same time I'm thinking about sending data back through the the Guardian Forever to, to save Tasha. Well, here's the book, and they did it, and it's Riker with Troy, but it's the same idea. I was like, the, and it's almost like this this zeitgeist in nerd culture. You know, the geeks and the nerds, we all have these same kind of thoughts, like you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I like this, but what if all of us are having those conversations? Yep. And so you, it's it's not a surprise to me when I see some kind of a story over here that does a similar kind of thing as what's over here. And, you know, how, how many we had one year we had two different Christopher Columbus movies come out within a couple of months of each other. We had three different Long Island Lolita movies in the same year. It's it's not a it's not an unusual thing for lots of different people to have the same kind of idea. So how do you make sure that yours is unique enough that it doesn't get compared to other people, other other stories, or do you even worry about that at this point? I I, I never really did. I um so I I, I I learned to sort of let go of this when I learned that Shakespeare's Hamlet was a remake. Um, <laughs> uh, there had been someone else. I think I I don't think we know who actually had written the same story. Uh, like a couple years earlier, had aired on uh, you know uh, in the London theater circuit. Um, we don't have a copy of that text anymore. It's called the Ur Hamlet, right? Uh, but even then, there was uh, there was a version of it that existed in the French literature, and it's based on obviously an old uh, uh, Norse saga from Saxo Grammaticus, right? Mm. Uh, the Amleth story, which got turned into the Northman, actually. Yeah. Um, and so um, when I learned that, I was like, oh, like none of this, like none of this matters. We've been remaking stuff forever, right? Um, there are, I think, I think each of the three Greek tragedians wrote about Electra. So, you know, it's okay. Uh, well, and, Ro um, Romeo and Juliet was originally Italian, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah and obviously, uh, like, uh, Macbeth is sort of history, right? So, like, that story had been, you know, recirculated, you know, all through English history in some form or other, right? And, and so, like, when you learn that, right, you you know, you you learn to sort of take a step back. But, like, at the same time, you know, you, you want to try and say something new. So this actually was one of these sort of original pieces here was I, I love Dune, but I was like never convinced by Frank Herbert's philosophy. Right. Uh, you know, he, um, because, or rather his, his solution to his problem, right. He, the, the book Dune is about the like problem of charismatic leaders. Right. And, and the, uh, the fact that heroes are actually, uh, catastrophes, right. Uh, children of Dune really is like the last Jedi of Dune books, but like on purpose and, um, <laughs> You know, like like Paul fails and I, you know I've, collapses in this. I've never pile. heard it characterized that way before. I don't think that's uh, that's that's a new one on me. Yeah, I was I uh, was reading it again, and I was like, oh wow, it's like really sad to see Paul this way. This reminds me of something. Uh, and um, I, and I I actually like I like the first four Dune books. I love God Emperor. I think it's fascinating. But uh, but like Frank Herbert's solution to the problem of charismatic leaders is um, find a planet with giant worms on it. Uh, have one guy take so much uh, fictional space substance that he fuses with the worms and becomes immortal, rule humanity for 4,000 years so they develop a race memory of tyranny and they'll never fall for this trick again. And, like, that's not a very <laughs> serious answer, right? It's an interesting answer. Again, I love God Emperor of Dune, but, like, heroes are uh, and charismatic leaders are sort of an inevitable feature of the human landscape, and I don't feel like Dune takes that very seriously. I... I I, I think it's actually kind of shrugs at its main thesis. 
Um, and so I, I wanted to go back and say, okay, well, if heroes are going to happen, right? Like, how do we steel man this question a little bit? And also, like, like maybe we need heroes. Maybe we can't just, like, sort of shrug off the idea completely. Um, Dune is like a deconstruction of, of John Carter, right? And I, I, uh, I wanted to put John Carter back, you know, uh, on his throne, so to speak. And, um, but, like, acknowledge, you know, the critiques that Dune makes at the same time. Um, and, and so, like, to do that, right, you know, you're already so closely in conversation with earlier works of science fiction that, like, to do something that's completely original was, like, actually missing the point. You know, I wanted people to look at Dune when they're looking at Sun Eater, right? Sun Eater starts out, like, very much like Dune right at the beginning, the especially at the beginning. Um, you know, there's sword practice and they have shields and stuff like that. But then it takes a pretty sharp left turn about a third of the way into the first book and it never really looks back. But at the whole time, I want readers to think, you know, like, what is he trying to say about Dune? What is he trying to say about science fiction in general? You know, and like, where is this book's place in like the whole conversation of science fiction literature? So you, you like you can't completely get away from it. It's possible, you know, that in that first book, maybe I cleave a little too close to some of the sources um well the yeah, other the but, other thing about dune is the the religious aspects of it because you have the Bene Gesserit basically manipulating things in order to to create this situation with paul and 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 all of that so you have some commentary there on re organized religion matters of faith belief and and how that impacts a society and and a and a government and an empire and and a and a civilization as well. Yeah, and of course in Dune it's all cynical, right? Like all the yeah. religion is fake, actually. Uh, and so I also have a fake religion, but uh, I have set that up against like actual sincere beliefs that people have, right? And this is something. Uh, this is something a lot of science fiction writers do. I'm I, I'm a, I'm a Catholic, and so I, I'm increasingly disturbed by how frequently this happens in science fiction literature. Like I love I love Stargate, right? But like the Ori are just Catholics, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and except that the theology is incoherent and makes no sense. Yeah. Um, uh, so you know, uh, not Catholics at all. I'm obliged to say, but um, but like, but like they're dressed up like them, right? And and you see this like throughout speculative fiction because like so many science fiction writers like don't have a religious bone in their body, uh, and so they just think it's all silly and like why don't we just make fun of it? And and um, you know, Frank was Catholic and uh, he became some sort of nondescript Buddhist, you know. Um, uh, I don't know uh, if he ever like really seriously committed to it or if it was just a sort of vague interest in, in, in Eastern philosophy, but um, which is not me throwing shade at Buddhists. I just don't know how committed he was yeah. to any of it really, uh, you know, but, um, but like he's sort of in that camp. Right. And so I, uh, it, that's one of the things that bothers me uh, about not just his work, but science fiction in general. So I wanted to sort of uh, re-examine those questions, but like, you know, be a little bit more fair to religion and to religious people because I find so 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 few science fiction works are. Yeah, and and that's something that I've noticed as well. And 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 there are there are some works out there. Deep Space Nine comes to mind for one uh, that actually treats religion with a certain amount of respect, whether it's you know advocating or not you know, is is beside the point it basically sits there and says this is a fundamental belief of this of the this people here this civilization believes x and so we're going to treat it seriously because 
it's part of who these characters are. Yeah. And it informs their decisions and their actions. And if you if you don't take it seriously, you run the risk or 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 even deliberately choose to run into parody and satire and you undermine anything that you're trying to do if you're trying to tell a serious story. Yeah, well, you also you run the risk of just saying less interesting things, right? You know, yeah. I, I, I think that one of the great missed opportunities of, of SG-1, of Stargate, was that none of the main team were religious. There were a couple of, like, intimations that Carter might actually be, and I really wish they pulled on that thread harder because in a universe where, like, Ra exists and actually is an alien, like, warlord, like, what does that do to your worldview as a Christian, like, facing these, like, actually these pagan gods are real, but they're aliens— um, what does that do to your faith, right? Yeah. Uh, does it make it stronger, right? Does it um, does it destroy it, right? Um, does it do both by turns, right? Like depending on the character's arc through the story, and and well, I not, think often... not only that, you could also do the the discussion of can faith and science live together in the same person? Yeah, there's that as well, right? Because Carter, of course, is you know she's the she's the science the, the science gal on the team, yeah. and um, uh, and because these things like shouldn't be intention right like they don't have to be it's it's very it's very strange that um that so many people think that they're um you know at, at loggerheads with each other sorry about the construction noise by the way no, it's all um right. not much i can do about it but um well and and there have been uh there have been a couple of complimentary comp uh comments on your on your decor there people uh, admire the wall oh uh, thank you the, the woodwork there so Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, my uh, my dad and I uh, have been building the office up here. Uh, when I moved into the house, it was uh, it was just sticks up here. So we've been slowly putting everything together. Um, the other wall actually is veneer. It looks the same, but uh, it's a magnet board, uh, which is pretty oh, fun. So okay. I've got all my notes over there. So I don't want those in frame because then people <laughs> will see the plan. Yeah, but they'll um, see they'll see that you're busy. You're being productive. Yeah, yeah, but but right? then they'll you know get spoiled and stuff. Uh, <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'll uh, I put some Easter eggs on the wall and mess with people. I'll change my notes out every time I, I live stream. Yeah. Um, but uh, but no, thank you, everybody. Um, it's been a lot of work, but it's been uh, it's been nice. So when you're when you're going through these stories, you're you're putting all this together in in your head. You've been thinking about it for years. How much of it do you outline, and how much of it is just stream of consciousness? Let's just see where it goes. So the first book was basically all stream of consciousness. I was writing it all through college. Um, I think in my sophomore year of college, uh, I realized because my plan had been that I would I would be published by the time I graduated. That was <laughs> I missed it by like a month, yeah. but uh, or at least I sold the books about a month after I got out. But uh, but that was my plan because I was getting an English degree because I'm a fool, and um, so I needed to like have something figured out. And uh, around sophomore year, I think I got real serious about trying to get this done. But I was like, look, that's like three years. Like, I, I don't have to like really rush. I can figure this out, right? Um, but then the funny thing about selling a, a book series to a publisher is they like expect, uh, in most cases, they expect uh, the books to get turned in. And um, <laughs> funny how that works. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and so they were like, yeah, when can you have number two to us? Is like a year good? And I was like, a what now? Uh, so I had to figure out how to do that. And, um, with books two on, I, I've started outlining like very assiduously. I um, when I was working at Bain's offices, I found an old David Drake outline, uh, and uh, David Drake's outlines uh, were like fifty pages long, like single spaced. Oh, wow. 
Uh, and uh, and I really admired David Drake, uh, you know, rest in peace, uh, a brilliant writer, but like also an absolute workhorse. Like Bain used to structure their publishing schedules around uh, Dave's uh, deliveries because he was so regular. They knew exactly how long it would take for him to turn a project in without asking him. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, that's the guy to be, right? I want to be David Drake when I grow up. Um, I'm sure if he were here, he would like shudder to hear me say that out loud, uh, Dave being Dave. But um, uh, but like that was like clearly like that's the writer I want to be right in terms of, of professional conduct. Right. And um, so I like took the outline home. It was like a book that was like it, I think it was one of the general books he did with Tony Daniel. Uh, it had been uh, published by that point. So it was you know fine. And it was just like basically they were going to throw it away. So I like looked at how he did it and um I started to just copy his outlining technique and that like really worked for me. So I, uh, I usually write these giant, I think the outline for the last book is something like 50, 60,000 words. So it's like as long as, uh, it's as long as like Harry Potter one, uh, wow. basically, which is a book. Um, but I, um, I, I started thinking about the outlines as like low resolution drafts, right? Cause like mm. it's, it's one thing to write a chapter, but it's another thing to write the chapter when it's like this long. Um, yeah. cause then you could actually get your head around the whole thing like pretty easily. And, um, I, I found that most of my writer's block, uh, you know, so-called, was just like I hadn't sat down and actually thought about what the scene should be. And so once I started doing these outlines, it was a lot easier for me to hit one, two, three thousand words a day. Um, and I, you know, I have, I'm not saying I haven't had problems writing since, right? But um, but it's made things a lot easier. Um, and uh, I, I think a lot of, um, you know, aspiring writers are like afraid of doing outlining because it, it feels somehow less platonic it's like i should just be a perfect conduit for my art uh but like actually writing is a job right and um you know sometimes if you you know what you're doing isn't producing words it's not your method and you have to change what you're doing and um the outlining has really worked for me now when when you're doing this kind of thing are you outlining are you setting up major elements major scenes first and then filling in the blanks between them. Okay, I need yeah, sort of. I need this um, thing to happen. Here's the climax. Here's this thing. Here's this confrontation here. And then basically those are your those are your main pillars. And then you have the the other stuff in between. You go back in and say, okay, well, in order for me to get from point A to point B, I got to have this happen, this happen, and this happen. Yeah, exactly. I uh, so what I usually do is uh, I draw a vertical line like right down the middle of a sheet of paper. And I know, like, I know I want it to end here, right? Or, and I want it to, and maybe I don't know where it begins yet, right? Or I've got the beginning, but I don't know exactly where I want the plot for uh, this book to end exactly. But once I get those two ends sort of figured out, you know, I might have, like, four or five ideas for scenes or things that I want to happen. And I have to figure out what the right order is. And then as I do that, you know, I get sort of a timeline for the overall book sort of set up. So by the time I'm done, I might have a dozen, 15 points on the piece of paper and got little arrows pointing at the dots to figure out the order. Right. And, um, and then I'll take that and I will turn that into like a three to five page summary where I'm like, and then they go from point A to point B and at point B they do these things. And then they go to, you know, point C. And um, that's usually the thing that I'll send to my editor to say, Hey, this is the next book. What do you think? Right. Um, especially if I like, needed to renew a contract or something, that would be like my, 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 pitch synopsis yeah uh and then i would take that and i would break it down into chapters because i figure if there are i don't know 10 points right on the outline uh you know that gives me approximately like five to six chapters to reach each point 
and so I'm looking at like 60 chapters. I know my chapters are X long. That's about the length of one of my books normally. So it's like a really weird, like pretty, like pretty like rational mechanical calculation that goes into like how, how much story I'm allowed to have basically. Although the problem there is my chapter length is starting to creep up as, as I have written more and more. Uh, it was like 3000 words on average. Now it's almost five. And like, that's a, that's a sickness uh, trying to find the cure. But um, so the books have gotten a little bit longer. Um, but uh, but it is a pretty mechanical process early on, you know, sort so, of figure out how much story there's going to be. So you're going from David Drake to David Weber now. Uh, <laughs> yes, but without the uh, without the, the speech to text. Right. Um, well, I, yeah, I don't even have an excuse. Um, I don't I, I don't know what's been driving it, but the last two books this has happened and I uh, I'm not happy about it. So, well, now is is there. When you go through and you're reviewing your stuff and you're noticing, hey, my my chapters are getting longer and this is how much of the self editing are you allowing yourself to do before you send it into the publisher? How much of this do you have to stand and go, This is way too long, I gotta chop it again? Or or is it, you know, when you finally get the chapter is finished, is it just polish or this is 2000 words too long. I got to redo the whole thing. Um, it depends on the book. Sometimes it's not enough time for me to go look over it again or for a third time before I, before I turn it in. Um, but like one of the nice things about being traditionally published, right. Is like someone has actually paid a salary to like help me solve this problem. Right. And so um, it's often pretty useful for me to just go ahead and turn it in and see what my editor thinks. And with, um, with, uh, with Bain now, my editor is a, uh, DJ Butler, who is uh, a writer, a great writer in his own yeah. right. Um, yeah, he's one of the smartest on, guys I know. He's but. been on our channel uh, a few times now. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but he, um, he's also been my friend for, for years. And so we worked really, really well together. And Dave, uh, Dave went through and just sort of highlighted everything he thought might be extraneous. And so it was a lot easier for me to consider places to cut because I wasn't just staring at like this thing I'd worked so hard on. Right. He was like, well, yeah. what about this sentence? And if you, if you don't like that, you're like, well, you know, maybe that one is redundant, right? And so we managed to get about fifty thousand words out of the book, um, which is uh, which is a lot, uh, and so um, without really cutting any chapters. Um, so that was that was nice. It was it was nice to have an editor who was uh, that attentive because um, they're not all that way. Yeah, um, I had and, a, uh, I had a, a self-published work that I did. It started out as a as a piece of flash fiction for a, for a competition, and at some point it turned into a longer thing. But one of the one of the self restrictions that I put on it, every single chapter was no longer than eight hundred words, because the original okay. the original prompt for the flash fiction is eight hundred words or less to tell a story. And so I thought, okay, well, I can't, I can't tell this story in just 800 words. So I'll do every chapter as 800 words, and so that ha that had me going back and finding, okay, well, I'm I'm 850 words too long. Yeah, I'm, I'm 825. I'm 807. What can I go back? And now you now you start getting economical in your word choice. How can I say this different and still get the same idea? But I'm doing it with fewer words, different sentence structure, and all of that. And and it got me thinking, poetry can sometimes be a good exercise for that kind of thing. Because depending on how you're structuring your poem, 
you are limited in your word choice in your sentence structure and whatnot. And it seems to me that that might be a might be an uh, a, an untapped resource for a lot of writers to learn the economy of word choice in in putting this stuff together. Yeah, I think I agree. I hadn't thought about it in terms of uh, of like language economy, but certainly uh, in terms of like rhythm and style. Uh, I always laugh when I watch uh, like book review videos and people talk about prose style uh, because like nobody. Like nobody who has a booktube channel has a background in classical rhetoric. Like not nobody. Uh, I do, uh, and so um, because again, I, I got an English degree, like a like a crazy person, and so I um, and so I always I always smile, but um, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think that's I think there's probably some wisdom there. Poetry is is you know the sort of like the in a lot of ways like the cornerstone of like the Western literary tradition, right? Like most early stuff was poetic. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, we've completely abandoned it, um, in, in, in these benighted times, uh, and, and, um, you know, or we just say poetry is just when I like pause between my sentences for people to snap, right? Like that's not, poetry. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I, I shudder every time someone says the words free verse without then saying T.S. Eliot. Um, <laughs> but, um, he's the only one who's allowed and, uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I, I think I think there's some wisdom there because uh, one of my definitions for a perfect book is a book that you like can't take a word out without damaging the whole, yeah. right? I, I I don't know how many of those books exist or how I would prove that one exists, but like in the sort of platonic sense, I'm like there's a book somewhere uh, that can't be edited at all. It's like it's perfect, right? Um, I maybe Gene Wolfe wrote it, but, uh, maybe, but maybe maybe the prince maybe the Princess Bride because it is a perfect movie. That's true. Yeah. Uh, uh, I got a question in the chat from Death Angel Shadow. Does Vogon poetry count? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go to those guys. Uh, it's not safe. Not safe, uh, as I recall. Yes. Uh, no, the human stuff's way better, man. Um, so, do you write any poetry at all? Do you do any of that? Uh, I mean, it's kind uh, of a lost a bit art in at the this books. Point. Um, well, sorry. I said it's kind of a lost art at this point. Not too many people are doing it. Yeah, so I, I did for a little bit. Uh, I had a Shakespeare professor in college who said that none of us uh, could possibly write a sonnet. And so I was like, all right, man, let's go. Um, so I wrote like 12. Um, they like were pretty good at the time. Now I look back and I'm like, nah, I could do better. Uh, but uh, but haven't in a long time. Um, except for there's a little bit in, uh, in, in the books. There's some like songs and stuff. It's not quite to like Tolkien's level in terms of how many there are. Uh, but there are like some like sailor songs, soldier songs, not quite space shanties, but uh, but almost. Yeah. Uh, actually, I guess there is one. Uh, but uh, but there's a little bit in the books. Just um, they're but they're very few and far between. Somebody asked earlier where you went to college. You got your degree from North Carolina State. Is that right? Yeah, I did. So yeah. what what was it? Because you you're you're from the South. Mm -hmm. You don't exactly sound like you're from the South. I'm hearing no, a, I, I am a, a mongrel of... half Yankee. Oh, okay. um, yeah, my, my mother's family uh, is from Fayetteville, uh, and they've been here for hundreds of years. My dad's family are uh, New York Italian Catholics, moved here in 66. Uh, and uh, between uh, well, my, my, my mother came to speak more like my father over time. Uh, and uh, between growing up with, with uh, you know, my uh, with my parents and uh, listening to a lot of British audiobooks, I think my my accent is sort of uh, way less southern. My brother sounds substantially more southern than I do. I don't know how that happened. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I blame the audiobooks. Um, 
but uh but yeah no no i uh but I, I was born in raleigh uh still live here don't plan on going anywhere um you know some people will say that's not really the south my wife included she lives on she's from just over the county line and i'm not really <laughs> not really a southerner which she's like not wrong about uh but compared to most of the people who live in raleigh now like i was born here so uh yes i am yeah um you know so the the english the english degree you you have this you have this degree in english rhetoric how how have you been able to use it i mean I, i'm sure because you know you talk about tolkien you talk about creating languages you've done some of that for your book i don't know if the english rhetoric helps with any of that but are there are there moments where you have these little aha points i can use my degree for this i mean you know and you yeah, every, every day, honestly. I mean, uh, we use the word rhetoric now mostly to mean, like, you know, politicians using evil spells on us on television. Right. Uh, but, like, you know, it, it, it's it's the art of structuring sentences and communication persuasively, right? right? And there are, like, there are sort of standard ways of building sentences, of constructing sentences um, that rhetoricians will teach you to do, right? You know, you've got... Um, like your, your tricolon, right? We have a series of three things, you know, X, Y, and Z. And preferably, you know, uh, Z is the most important one that you build to it, right? And just knowing that you should build from smallest to largest in that sentence for maximum impact is a rhetorical technique, right? Right. Um, and so I, I think about this all the time when I'm writing. I'm like, oh, like if I say, you know, um, I don't know, like you put two things together that don't sound like they should go together. Like, uh, like you know, it was... Um, uh, like uh, the the font and fury, I don't know, right? Like that's a that's a structure called Hendiades, right? And so I'm like, I'll use some Hendiades in this sentence. Um, you know, it's 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 useful if you're a writer, uh, but um, you know, and, and really, it should be like broadly useful for just communicating in general. I, I'm often deeply suspicious of the fact that of the the the, the trivium, right? The three fundamental subjects of the classical education, right? Logic, uh, rhetoric, grammar. Uh, we only teach grammar anymore, and that barely. Uh, yeah. Like, what are we teaching? Is a, is a question that I, I wonder about frequently. Um, certainly uh, not a classical education. And um, so, but no, like as a, as a writer, you think about this all the time. This is one of my like big writing advice things. Is um, BYU actually has a. Um, uh, a thing on their on, on their website called the Silva Rhetoricae, uh, S I L V A Rhetorica, with an E at the end, uh, and it's got like a dictionary of all these rhetorical terms in it. And so, uh, what they used to do, like what Shakespeare did when he was fourteen, you know, and was learning to write, is he would like be given a device and be told to like write, you know, a dozen sentences using it. And so, I usually will recommend people like try that. Um, and uh, the BYU website's like really useful uh because it's just a very easy little wikipedia uh basically of uh, all these weird terms and they all like have greek names so it's it's like learning magic so it's it's kind of fun um, <laughs> when you when you create a world uh one one of the things that that i've talked with other authors about in in, in terms of the differences between setting a story on earth and setting a story on a different planet in another galaxy, another solar system, wherever. You can come up with all of the rules for your universe. Magic, science, religion, all of, all of the different things. 
are those deep dives for you, or is that something that you sit there and go, okay, well, Tolkien came up with this whole other completely different thing, you know, the Elvish language and, and all of these different uh, uh, characters and creatures and whatnot. Do you how how deep do you get into that part of the world building? Is it just enough to tell the story, or do you do more than that? It depends on how central it is, right? Because um, if it's really, really central to the story, you want to overplan to a certain degree. Um, but if it's if it's a little detail, uh, I'll like make it up on the spot, like as I'm writing the sentence, right? Um, you know, I might not have outlined for it at all. I'll just be somewhere and be like, "Oh, it'd be really cool uh, if I like had a, a imaginary animal that lived on this planet instead of like a dog, right? Uh, like, why don't we just make one up right now?" Uh, and then I'll like look around a little bit to come up with a a good name for it and um and and then go from there um but like the big stuff you need to over plan because you um you never know like what little facet of it's going to be useful and so you need to sort of uh if there's no research to do you need to sort of create the research right so that like you've got all this sort of background matter in your head that you can pull from uh because like for as much as i talk about like outlining and, and planning um like you need to have room for that inspiration to happen. Sure. And um, sometimes if you come up with really central things uh, on the spot, you create giant problems. Uh, you know, like you, what, Oh, like we can actually just go to hyperspace and shoot through ships now. Uh, like, <laughs> mm, well, there's, there's no problem with adding this. It'll be fine. Uh, people aren't going to ask any questions. Um, nerds never do that. Um, right. <laughs> and uh, you know, you shouldn't, so you shouldn't do that. Like you should have like, you know, the basic stuff, how does space travel work, kind of figured out, you know, deeply in advance. Now, you don't need to know, like, who invented the, like, 3.0 version of the, uh, you know, the hyperdrive that does whatever, unless that's important. Um, you can come up with that stuff later, but you should at least know, you know, the high-level, you know, big stuff going in. And sometimes it's fun. Like, I have, um, I went on a, I had a kick a couple, a couple of years ago now, where uh, I said there were 251 emperors who had uh, reigned in the empire from its beginning and i was like i should figure out who they all are and and uh like way down like uh, okay i'm done with this for now so i have a half completed uh you know list of emperors and the lengths of their reigns and their birthdays actually go finish because uh having that will be useful if i you know want to go write a story set like six thousand years earlier or whatever yeah well, and, and you never know when you are going to visit just a little corner in a pocket somewhere, and that turns into a whole nother series of books that go off, you know, like with with, with Weber's, with the, with the Honor Harrington stuff, you know, now you have the Talbot Cluster stuff, you have the Torch stuff, you have, you know, the stuff going on in Celestia, and all, all of these different things. In addition to the short story anthologies, he's got the main line and this sideline and that sideline and that and it all starts with just this one little bit that shoots off into its its own continuity it's kind of like with crisis on infinite earth back in dc comics you know yeah. here here are these main 12 issues and here's this scene and in order to follow what happens next, go over to Teen Titans number twelve, or, or or Justice League three fifty seven, or and and they have these little prompts in the comic book to tell you what happens next. But you got to go buy this book to get it. So, it, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's uh, 
Yeah, but, I'll get there. We'll get there. But you right have, now it's a pretty straight line. Yeah, but so. you have opportunities there because are, as you're going through these things, there are places where you can plant seeds for other things. Like you say, you've got a bunch of ideas that are in your head. I imagine that at some point going through all of this, you're like, oh, I can put this here, and then that can take me over here and do that. How much of that are you doing? Oh, a lot. There, uh, I, I, I can't put a number on it, but there are a at least at least half a dozen uh, random details in the books that are the seeds of ideas I already have for other books. So, you know, if I get around to writing them, you know, five, 10 years from now, people like, wait a second, he was planning this in 2019. What a genius. And like, it actually takes a lot less work to do that than it, than people think, right. You can like do one line in the book you wrote 10 years ago that sort of connects this idea that you might have. And like it, like it's fine as it is. People like have no idea it's connected to some other thing and it takes you 10 seconds to put it in a book, but it'll make you look real clever in 10 years if you get there. Right. Um, right. And so I just have like a list of things I want to do. Uh, and I, I've sort of put little seeds and there's a really obvious one in, in the, in book five, there's a character named Hector who shows up uh, and is very cool for like two chapters and then he leaves. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'll be back to him eventually. Um, Phil. What about a, uh, a language uh, dictionary? Uh, that would, uh, like just doing one, yeah. I think that'd be fun. Um, I need to get my, so my, my language notes are a, in a, a terrible state. I, I invent the alien language, uh, on a sentence by sentence basis because it's, it's very hard to do the language thing. And so, uh, you know, I'll write the sentences as I'm writing the book. I don't want to stop and translate anyway. I'll do that all at the end. So I, I tag every sentence, put an at sign at the front of every sentence I need to translate. And, um, when the book is over, I go do all of them, whether that's, you know, 50 or 200 lines of, of alien. And they're usually pretty short. They're mostly, they're not very long sections, but like this sentence, like, Oh, the sentence introduces subjunctive mood. I have to then go figure out how to do that and create rules for how to do that one at a time. So my language notes are not linear at all. So I need to go through and systematize them and, um, and sort of clean them up before I try to present anything on how the language works um but it is all there this is how i ended up with two words for and right because it's uh, i was like i can't find it i know it's in here somewhere uh and i gave up after 20 minutes of flipping over the same 40 pages and uh it's like well they have two now um it's and, it's uh, funny it, it calls to mind mark okran talking about when he was developing the klingon language um which was based on what they came up with, I guess Jimmy Doohan, who played Scotty, came up with the original guttural stuff that's in the first motion picture. And it's just yeah. a few words. But Okran took that, and of course we've got the Klingon language in Star Trek III, and and he said everything was fine, and he had all of this stuff, and of course we had two or three different editions of the Klingon dictionary that had come out prior to Star Trek VI, when now suddenly he needs the Klingon form of to be, he says the Klingon language doesn't have to be, and now he has he had to completely redo and 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 come up with this thing because there was no B in the Klingon language, and now suddenly you had to have it. And he's like, it was it was it, it was it's an interesting I, dilemma because you don't think about that kind of things. I mean, it's it's a it's a B verb, you know, to be or not to be, and for that verb to not exist, then you don't have is was were you know lots of different st- structures that come out of that 
And yeah, I was that, that a, was, really was that a conscious decision on the part of the uh, uh, the language creation process at the beginning, where they uh, I th- they d- like, didn't want it, and then they decided they like couldn't get away with not having it? Or? Well, yeah, I think I think Okran had deliberately said they don't have a B verb, and then Star Trek VI brought in you know the original you, you you can't appreciate Shakespeare until you have it in the original Klingon, and now suddenly he needs B in order to translate the the speech. And uh, so, yeah, I think I think it was a it was a conscious choice on his part not to have it until he had to have it. Until he had to have it. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, I didn't know that. I, I knew it was. I, I knew it hadn't had one originally. I just never stopped to think about whether or not it was on purpose. Um, yeah. Because sometimes you'll you'll do stuff and you'll like re- realize in building languages that you like. Oh, like I don't know how I want to handle adjectives yet, right? Because like I've been doing very simple sentences for like the first book. And I never had to describe, I never had to use an adjective. So like, what's the rule now? And you're like, that's a really like dumb thing to have missed, right? <laughs> uh, it's like a whole like basic part of speech. Um, but like it hadn't come up, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and at that point you're like, well, I guess they don't decline at all because I'm not messing with that. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing that again. I did downs, I did verbs, we're done. Um, you know, so, um, but, but, you know, you come up with, with rules. And I, uh, see, I in language, uh, is uh, is based on Latin and Japanese because those are the two languages I like have uh, any passing familiar familiarity with beyond English, um, Spanish notwithstanding. Um, so like the nouns in Sielsen work like Latin nouns and the verbs work like Japanese verbs. Mm. Uh, this Japanese has, uh, except that except that Sielsen has more tenses. Japanese only has two tenses. Um, you know, but that's like really out there dirt stuff. You know? Well, but see, it's that kind of thing though that really adds depth and and you you get layers into these stories and and it and it enriches what you're trying to do you know it's like it's like when uh, you know George Lucas is talking about Star Wars it has a lived in look you have that it's it's not all new and shiny it's got a history it's got weight it's got you know it's got time to it and when you have these kind of elements that you introduce into your stories, I think that does add those those elements because this is a thing this is, exists and and people are using this language. So it had to come from somewhere and and it's something that that lives in your universe and it just adds another another level of detail which which adds to the believability factor and makes that story just that much better. Oh yeah, I just didn't want to like start rambling about participles and like make the audience's eyes close <laughs> over. Uh, I was just trying to avoid that. Yeah. Uh, but no, like you, you need to think about that stuff. You need to think too about like the relationship between like language and names and between language and like biology in the case of aliens, right? So like the the seals don't have sexes, um, and so uh, like you know they they you have to sort of like what do you do about gender? Like do nouns have genders, right? Right. Uh, and so you have to like think about how like that works with. Uh, with aliens and and i actually like linked it to a voice system so depending on like how you uh how the sentence is structured right if the if the uh the noun in the sentence is masculine right then the sentence is uh the subject is masculine then the uh the sentence is active voice and if it's the other if it's if it's feminine subject it's 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 passive um again these are not saying anything about human nature we're talking about aliens here no. uh you know but um but, but s- somebody's uh, I, I, somebody's going to read into that, Christopher, and you're going to hear about it. <laughs> I, you know, I'm sure that I will. Um, but like, you know, these were these were linguistic terms before you know the word gender was applied to anything else. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, 
is that is that something that you worry about when you're doing these stories? Is that somebody is going to come in and try to try to see it through a political lens or an ideological lens or something? I mean, you know, the Hugo Awards being the the thing in the in the news lately, and it's it's one of those things where this argument has been going on for a while: message over story, story over message, and people reading into things that might or might not be there and, and what your priorities are. Do you ever worry about any of that when you're, when you're writing these? Uh, well, like, I mean, yeah, obviously, right. Like you don't want people to uh, like cause problems for you or do crazy stuff. Cause people will do crazy stuff. Right. You know, I, I know writers who've like had their children stalked because someone didn't like what they said in a fictional universe about made up people. Yeah. Right. And like that, that, that stuff concerns me. Right. But like in, in a broader sense, I, I am not responsible for the emotional reactions of, of thousands of people. Right. Um, nobody can be like, that's a really unreasonable thing to expect of anybody. Um, you know, um, so like if somebody reads the book, like, man, I don't want anybody to read my work and feel like personally hurt uh, or anything like I, I want people to read the books and, and, you know, be able to leave regular reality for a little while and go somewhere worse in the case of Sunnier. It's not a pleasant <laughs> place, but, um, but I want you to be able to take a break and enjoy the story and enjoy the, the other world and like the different culture and all that stuff. And if it's not doing that for you, if it's, if it's upsetting you, um, then why maybe it's not the book for you, right? Like I, I always say Sun Eater's for anyone, but it, Sun Eater's not for everyone. It's not for people who don't like it. Um, and I'm never going to change what it is for strangers on the internet. Uh, I'm not gonna change who I, I'm not gonna change who I am for strangers on the internet, um, but um, uh, but yeah, I mean, so there's nothing you can really do about other people's feelings, you know. I I, uh, I don't know, maybe that's the like aspiring Roman Stoic in me, like I, I just can't control that <laughs> stuff. Um, well, but at the same time, like I worry about it all the time. Like I have a nine month old, I don't want her to have any problems because people on the internet are crazy, so. Yeah. Well, it's it's a healthy attitude to have. I mean, you know, you sit there because mental health being a subject of discussion a lot online, you know, you can sit there and 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 worry yourself into a depressive state and you not get anything done just because, oh, what are what are such such and so and these people, keyboard warriors going to say about what I say in this book or or what I said in this interview or what I wrote in this journal or whatever. It, it can make you paranoid. If yeah, yeah. I mean, and I won't pretend that like I handle it perfectly all the time. Sometimes I, I get real worried about it, um, you know, but like I, you know, I basically have, uh, have faith that uh, like my intentions are good. Right. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I just want to tell stories that I think are fun. And if people don't like them, that's OK. Um, but um, but yeah, you know, like it's it's weird out there. That's for sure. Well, and it seems like you're in a good home there with Bayon because, uh, you know, I've had conversations with Tony uh, on a number of occasions talking about their approach to, to things. And it really does feel like out of all of them, I mean, really, when you th when you start to think about science fiction, you've got Bayon, you've got Tor, you've got Orbit, um, and, you know, as as far as the first ones that come to mind. And Bayon seems to me to be the one where let's just tell good stories and, sure. and yeah. you know, maybe an emphasis on military fiction to, to a point, but it's, I'm just going to let, I'm just going to let John Ringo, I'm just going to let John Wright. I'm going to let David Weber 
you know, I'm going to just write your stories. Just tell tell the stories that you want to tell. And we're not going to worry about whose sensibilities get offended or who gets bent out of shape because, you know, X and so whatever type of, of character. So it feels like maybe you're kind of in the right place there. Is that was that a how did how did that happen that you ended up at Maine? Oh, well, it's a, it's a bit of a story. Um, so I, I'm published uh, by Doll Books originally. I still am. They have they have the first five books. Um, and uh, I had a five-book contract. And uh, the fourth book uh, ended up getting split into two because it was so long. It was it was 320,000 words originally. And Doll got handed orders from Penguin, who owned them at the time, uh, that they couldn't publish anything longer than 200,000 words because this was 2021 and paper got very, very expensive ah, yes. uh, due to one thing and another that happened. And um, uh, so I had a, a choice and it was either cut half the book out or uh, I could have two books. And I, I chose the latter, obviously. Uh, and um, in doing so, I burned out my my contract, um, and, you know, filled out the fifth book. And uh, I had a conversation with my editor at the time. I was like, look, does this mean that the original last novel is also going to have to be split. Should I expect that these conditions are still going to be a limiting factor next year and the year after that when I write book six and seven? And uh, and she said, um, that is possible, right? And so I didn't get a hard answer. Uh, and I didn't get a hard answer for months and months. And so I had to start writing book six because I like I could do nothing. Uh, you know, right. like my wife has a job. Why should I take a break? Because people aren't giving me an answer. So I, I spent like six months working on book six with the expectation that there would be book seven. Uh, and, uh, and then I was finally told uh, by uh, someone at DAW that, yeah, we can do two more books. No problem. But we're getting uh, we're getting bought by a new owner. There's a merger thing going through we'll do the contract after the merger. Uh, and like, that makes sense. Like you can't do stuff like that while you're, you know, courting a corporate merger. Right. So uh, I waited. And then after it went through, I sent the thing out again and said, Hey, here are my proposals for book six and seven book six is about at that point, I think three quarters finished. Uh, and uh, so, you know, if there's a problem, uh, you know, uh, and they, and there was, and they said, we never promised you two more books. Uh, and uh, I said, I have an email uh, and they said, well, it's one more book. And I said, that's, uh, it's not a great, not a great offer. <laughs> Um, I've already written most of, uh, most of this one here and, um, you know, uh, I got to do something with it and, uh, they didn't want it. Um, so, uh, I, I went to Tony, I went to Bain and I said, Hey, I have, uh, I have two books. Do you want them? And they said, sure. Um, and, um, you know, it's just business, right? Uh, sure. you know, I certainly, uh, I don't hold any ill will towards, towards Daw. Like they just made the decision they wanted to make and. And that's fine. Uh, you know, it was a weird time, like, you know, companies getting bought and changing hands and all this stuff like, okay. Um, but you know, I, I couldn't like let the books go to waste. Um, you know, I couldn't, I, I wasn't going to rush the ending of my first and only series to, to suit the bottom line or anything like that. The, uh, you know, I, I get business, but like the art actually is important because it's the art that causes business to happen. Um, you know, if the ending sucks, nobody's going to buy the books anymore. Uh, cause word will get out that the ending sucks. So, uh, I wasn't going to let that happen. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and like, we're cool now. Like everything's fine. Like they, uh, they've been taking pretty good care of the backlist and everything's, everything's cool. So I know people like want to hear this story about, uh, you know, the scrappy artist and the big scary company, but the big scary company was getting bought by a bigger company and, you know, there's all this stuff going on and, and, um, yeah. it's just a unfortunate consequence of business being what it is, but the series is getting finished and it's getting finished properly and it's in good hands and, Bain worked uh, really hard to like make all the details match. Like book six looks like all the other books. Like we didn't change the look. We didn't change the feel. 
um, reader experience should be like exactly the same, except the logo on the spine has changed. And um, that was really important to me because like, I, you know, I'm a collector too. Right. And I don't want my books to not match. That's infuriating. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Tony was really cool about all of that. I was probably a huge pain in the neck about it because I was like, Oh, that's not the right font though. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but uh that's but the, I, I knew I would hear about it. Yeah, so. that's one thing that I've noticed about about Bane stories is the the look of the covers generally tend to be consistent, depending yeah, even even across different authors. You know, they have a they have a style. You know, there's, yeah, yeah. there's Bane, a house style uh, for Bane. Almost as much as Harlequin has a has sort of a house style to it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you when you go buy a when you go buy a Harlequin book, right, which I don't, but like you know, people who do, right, they buy it because it's a Harlequin book. They don't buy it because of who's writing it. Uh <laughs> and 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 Bane's sort of house uh philosophy has always been sort of the same, right? It's like want well, people to know a Bane book at 20 paces, right? Right. Uh and uh and, and and you do, with a few exceptions. There are sometimes they'll put a series out that like really looks like itself. Uh, but like all the big series, like the the Weber stuff, the Ringo stuff, like they kind of look similar, right? You know, um, Manticore and uniforms, notwithstanding, right? Like you know the beret, right? But uh, uh, but yeah, no. So I uh, th- I, I was an exception, um, you know, because because it, it made sense, right? It made sense to keep the books looking the same because people you don't want people to get confused. Uh, I remember I'm a big Ian Banks fan, and um, Orbit publishes his first three books and the last three books in a ten book sort of series. They're all standalones. But those middle four, I could like never find in bookstores. And it turned out they were right next to them. I just wasn't looking because they were completely different. Um, I just was stupid, and I, I didn't want that to happen. So, so, but, uh, so, are, am I hearing there are two books still to come? You've got one uh, coming in April. April, yeah. So that's book six, and then book seven will be the last book that'll probably come out uh, late summer next year. Uh, so like July ish. Um, and uh, maybe maybe a little bit later, maybe like August, September next year. Uh, book seven doesn't have a title yet, but book six is Disquiet Gods. Um, and all of the cover art is is similar to this for the new book, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you click on the books right there, actually, it'll it'll be in there. Um, the uh, art is mostly done by a guy called Kieran Yanner, who's one of the uh, uh, senior art directors for Wizards of the Coast, uh, who's done much of like magic cards and stuff. He's great. Um, he didn't do book one, but he's done uh, all the main novels since. So uh, Empire of Silence there is the first book, and then uh, Hell and Dark, Demon of White, Kings of Death, Ashes of Man, and then Disquiet Gods is the uh, the first one here with Bane. So they like they match the look to a T. So. Cool. All right, and that's coming out in April? Yep, April 2nd. Uh, and if anyone is near or around Raleigh, I will be doing a signing at Quill Ridge Books on the 4th. Um, so, uh, hopefully we'll see some people there. I can't speak. Okay, oh. so the the website for for Christopher SolonEmpire.com. You can also find Chris on. I'm this is this you? This is not that me. is not me. I am not on Twitter. Uh, not on Twitter. Okay, that I is know. someone with a very similar name. Um, <laughs> right. But you are on YouTube. That is me. Yeah, that's where I and, do most of my most of my stuff. That's and the best you're on place Instagram. So these links, and I'll I'll go and adjust and make sure that that Twitter uh, account is not in there for people to. Yeah, no worries. No up. worries. Uh, all right. I uh, I used to I used to have a Twitter, but it was uh, it was taking too much of my time. Yeah, it 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 is it is a a rabbit hole leading to a cesspool. Someday, uh, man, that is the truth. <laughs> uh, and it, and even if it wasn't, it's a huge time sink. So yeah. I, I just I couldn't I couldn't do it. Yeah. 
All right, Christopher. Well, thank you very much for for taking time to to talk to us about it. Uh, we will, as we get closer to uh, April second, and uh, the new book comes out, we'll uh, we'll have you back. And you know, who knows? Maybe we'll maybe we'll bring you in on a panel discussion of English rhetoric at some time. Language structure. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Christopher uh, Rocchio. Thanks very much for being here, sir. Uh, uh, this is this was a fun a fun conversation. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It was a blast. All right, and uh, we will be back uh, right after this to uh, to start taking your calls, uh, which you might or might not be uh, a smart thing to do, but we'll do it. So stand by, everybody. We will be right back after this. Since 2009, Sci-Fi For Me has been bringing you news and opinion from all over the web. With original content every week, science fiction, fantasy, and horror have been on our radar from the beginning. News, rumors, idle gossip. When you need to know, count on Sci-Fi For Me to be there asking all of the questions. This is Sci-Fi For Me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. One of these days, I will push all of the right buttons in the right sequence. Either that, or I will have a producer. All right, everybody say hi, Tide. Hi, Tide. Good to have all of you with us here. We are live from the bunker. And it is time to turn the show over to you out there assuming that you want to take control of the show i mean it doesn't have to happen we don't have to have people uh, come in but uh, you know let's uh, let's let's put this out there in case anybody wants to uh, to do that hang on a second here uh, uh. Oh, there. All right. So there's that. There's that. Through here. There's that. Push the button. And it is in the chat widgets for people to see. Let's pin that to the top. And uh, there we go. Those of you who want to join the show, you are more than welcome uh, to jump in here via StreamYard. And uh, make sure you keep it clean, folks. But, uh, yeah, we are... Uh, we are talking about a lot of different things. If you've got things that you want to talk about, any any topic that we've covered through the week, or if you've got something new that you want to bring up, we could probably look at that as well. <coughs> but there are a lot of things that have been going on. And uh, I do want to take a moment here to congratulate the nominees of the Prometheus Award. Uh, they they have been uh, they've been announced. The Libertarian Futurist Society have made 17 nominations for the best novel category of the Prometheus Award. These are uh, these are books that are named uh, that are that are awarded for uh, this libertarian group. Uh, you have 
it is what it is. So, uh, so you have here uh, a list, and funnily enough, <coughs> there's a couple of titles on here that surprised me. Uh, but the list of best novel nominees, I'm not going to go through all of them. Future Proof by Stephen Albrecht, Queen Wallace by C.J. Carey, uh, uh, The Long View by Mackie Chandler, Theft of Fire by Devin Erickson, uh, Swim Among the People by Carl Gallagher. Now, I, I want to note, a lot of these authors, I have never heard of these authors before. So some of you probably haven't heard of them as well, which means there's an opportunity here for you to find some new stuff for people uh, that that you may have never seen before. Let me go through the rest of the Swim Among the People with Carl Gallagher. God's Girlfriend by Dr. Insensitive Jerk. <laughs> Lord of a Shattered Land by Howard Andrew Jones. That one I have read. It is an excellent book. I've, I've written a review over at, at uh, com. Liberty's Daughter by Naomi Kritzer. Prophet Song by Paul Lynch. Julia by Sandra Newman. This is the one that surprised me. This is the feminist retelling of 1984, and it's been nominated for a Prometheus Award from the Libertarian Futurist Society. So maybe there's more to this book than, I, than just the retelling from the female point of view. Uh, Victory City by Salman Rushdie, House of Gold by C.T. Rizwi, uh, Trail of Travail by R.H. Snow. Uh, it's part of the Watcher of the Damned series. Critical Mass by Daniel Suarez, Black Hats by Steve Wire, Hacking Galileo by Fenton Wood, Misplaced Threats by Alan Zim. So all of those nominees for the Prometheus Award. So congratulations to them. Mrs. Boss, you had something you wanted to to bring into the to the mix there? I was just gonna say I know a certain author who won't be on that list. You what who? Well, you got to finish a book to get on the list first. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. Hey, by the way, I, I see over on Odyssey, I don't know if they're still with us, uh, Just Sanguinis. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's a name I haven't seen before. So, hi. Good to have you with us. Uh, let the whole world be base 1488. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. But it's good to have you with us. Glad to have you. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. So, yeah, Warner Brothers. Here's here's an, an, an interesting item, I guess you could say. Warner Brothers is, is executing a strategy. And it's leading to some speculation. Tatiana Siegel writing in Variety. Warner Brothers spends big. Joker 2 budget hits $200 million. Lady Gaga's $12 million payday. Courting Tom Cruise's New Deal and more. In January, uh, Warner Brothers Motion Picture Group Chiefs Michael DeLuca and Pam Abdi jetted to London to connect with the new crown jewel of the studio, Tom Cruise. The three met to identify a film that would kick off their non-exclusive strategic partnership. Sources say a raft of possibilities were discussed, including an Edge of Tomorrow follow-up and Quentin Tarantino's The Movie Critic, which currently isn't set up with a distributor and has Warner Brothers like every major studio salivating. All right, so a couple of quick things here, because I have been seeing a lot of online chatter that we're getting an Edge of Tomorrow sequel. 
That's not what this article says. What this article, what I'm reading from this article is that there is an Edge of Tomorrow sequel idea. So everybody be careful when when you're reading this stuff because people are reading into it things that might not necessarily be there. Uh, going through all of this, uh, a lot of people are talking about Cruz working with auteurs. You know, he wants to work with people like Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, instead of just doing the action thriller, Mission Impossible type of things, which is good because, you know, Tom Cruise is 61, and it, who knows how much longer he can use alchemy to stay young and uh, be able to do these things. But in 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 down into this article, there's a couple of things uh, because the the Joker sequel, the production budget has ballooned, exploded out to two hundred million dollars. Now the first Joker with Joaquin Phoenix that was a sixty million dollar film. The second one, this one, two hundred million. That's a problem. That's going to create issues, I think. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is getting a $20 million payout. Lady Gaga getting $12 million. This may, this may kill that series of films. Because if you're now suddenly making a $200, uh, $200 million picture, you've got to make seven or $800 million before you even think about breaking even. And that's a problem. It, there's no guarantee that Joker 2 is going to do a billion like the first one did. But it's interesting to note here, some, ex, some insider somebody says the strategy at Warner Brothers right now and the reason they made some of these big star deals, because they made a big deal with uh, Margot Robbie's uh, Lucky Chat Productions, they're basically playing with other people's money, says one insider. They're shopping for Quentin or Cruz with the notion they can use it as a shiny object that is going to be additive when Zaslav sells the company. So here's more speculation that we may be looking at a sale. Uh, it says here in April, Warner Brothers Discovery can entertain offers to buy, sell, or merge with a studio like NBC Universal, as many on the lot believe will happen. That's when the two-year lockup period expires as part of the 2022 deal that united Warner Media and Discovery. All of the recent moves from a first-look pack with Margot Robbie's Lucky Chap to the quest to land Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer follow-up are akin to painting a house before it hits the market. So, interesting development there with the Warner Brothers stuff and the potential strategy that Zaslav could be engaged in in order to sell what he just bought. Uh, Death Angel Shadow joins us in the call. Welcome, sir. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Interesting. Did I not say NBC Universal Comcast would be a great, you know, merge? Except or, uh, I don't. I don't think that any of these deals are a good idea. When I said so when Disney bought Fox. I think that that uh, I mean, on the flip side of things, you have uh, you have some companies. I think I saw. Uh, uh, um, uh, who is it? Um, who is it that Beast Daily Beast? They mm -hmm. sold they sold off a piece of their company, 
You know, there's there, a, a lot of this stuff, you know, buy and sell and buy and sell is is to me a lot of media companies that are just flailing around trying to survive. And yeah. I'm not exactly sure that Warner Brothers merging with NBC Comcast or, or Comcast Universal, whoever it is they are now. Yeah. I don't know that that's necessarily the best way to go because it reduces the number of sources for product. I mean, if you want to get sure. really, yeah. really finicky and practical, there's less co that that reduces the amount of competition in the marketplace. And that's going to affect the quality of the pro product that they put out. And, and I would agree in general principle with that. Um, but, you know, we, we know at least as far as like with the theme parks, you know, who, who's heavily invested in the Potter series. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, obviously Universal is. And, uh, you know, I was I was working there uh, when they they turned the uh, Back to the Future and that whole area into Simpsons. Mm -hmm. They turned it into Spring uh, Springfield. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, who who owns it now? You know, and, and it's so it's kind of another uh, that kind of became another thing, kind of like uh, you know Marvel Superhero Island uh, at Islands of Adventure, which is of course that's coming up um, pretty soon. I think they have an extension. I thought it was supposed to expire in like 2018. Well, but... and and the fact that you've got a new Harry Potter thing going into their Epic Universe park over at at, at Universal. Yeah. I mean, for them, I think it would make sense to to do that acquisition because it would protect that property. Yeah. Um, and they wouldn't put themselves into another situation like they did, you know, with Potter, like they did with because they're really have. I mean, obviously, if they're going to have it. At, at studios and at Island of Adventure and at Epic Universe, uh, you now you've got you got pieces at all three parks. And man, if if somebody like Disney came in and acquired it or something like that, <laughs> you know, can you imagine that? You know, I, I well, I don't know. I don't know that it, even even if Iger wanted to, I don't know that Disney's in a position financially to even contemplate doing this, something like that with with Warner Brothers because, you know, here they are sitting there. You know, we're gonna we're gonna pledge a million and a half or a billion and a half, however much it is, to to buy into Epic Games so we can put Disney and Fortnite. Yeah. And the the first question that everybody's asking is, where are you going to get the money? Because you don't have the money. How are you going to do this? And now you get hit with this, you know, class action lawsuit from Fubo over the, the over the sports, sports thing that yeah. that all of them are getting hit. You know, it's not just Disney, it's Disney and Fox and Warner Brothers getting hit with this lawsuit. And then Disney's got, I think, five or six other lawsuits they're having to deal with now. Wasn't the NFL is in on oh, they've got one. Um, about it, or they've got it. They've raised objections at the very least about it. Yeah. Um, because you know, I mean, traditionally, what uh, ESPN and ABC, both of which are owned by Disney, uh, you know, Monday Night Football, and <laughs> you know, yeah, um, yeah, and that definitely causes uh, could cause some issues. Well, and and what's funny to me is is seeing seeing the trend that I think is coming because there was a story here, I believe yesterday, NASCAR 
the NASCAR organization mm-hmm. has just signed an agreement with Creative Artists Agency because there's there is uh, a, a number of documentary type of productions, uh, rea- whether it's reality shows or documentaries or history of or whatnot, that are related to NASCAR. And so now... NASCAR has has signed with a talent agency. <laughs> so okay. that tells me because creative artists is not just talent agents; they develop material, they develop projects, you know, packages. So we're going to say, "Hey, you want David Hasselhoff? Then you've got to have Lori Petty and and Danica McKellar too." You know, those those kind of things where we'll pack you, you get a package deal where. You know, you can have six of our actors that we represent, and, oh, by the way, here's a writer and here's a director that we also represent. Let's package them all in together. And because it's it's a package deal, then maybe we can do some deals with the fees and the back end and the royalties and the points, participation, and all that other stuff. And if NASCAR is making a deal with CAA, that tells me that we've got more than one NASCAR-related entertainment property that's coming. Because you look at what's going on with the concert movies, right? Taylor Swift does one. Beyonce does one. They re-released the one from Talking Heads. Kiss has got their whole new Kiss has got the whole thing, yeah, with the holographic stuff, the 3D. Who's to say, why not? Why not put NASCAR in the movie theaters? Because if the streaming stuff completely falls apart, and if the sports networks end up imploding, here's an alternative. Right. You don't have to spend how much dollars for Paramount Plus and Max and Peacock and Netflix and all these other streaming channels that could have racing, just go to the movie theater and watch watch Daytona 500 in the movie theater. Oh, that would be interesting. They'd have to have to be a theater that served beer. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. But I, I, I can see that happening. You know, yeah, it, can you imagine watching a, watching a live stream of, yeah. of, a, of a NASCAR race in a... Yeah, that would be kind of... Well, because... And theaters, are, theaters need... Butts and seats. They do. I mean, they do. You know? And you saw some of this because Fandango and 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 that bunch started because you had these special special engagements and <coughs> limited release, right. and then you had the Metropolitan Opera. You know, the Metropolitan Opera does shows that end up in the movie theaters, and you could go and you could watch the opera at AMC theaters. And and all of this stuff done through Fandango, and and there was another one for a while. Um, Fathom Events, you know, you got Fandango out there, you got Fathom Events, and they're doing these special one-offs, and, you know, 30th anniversary screening of Ghostbusters, and here's David Lynch's 1984 Dune we just sat and watched on Sunday, and all of this stuff coming back to the theaters, and I imagine that somebody is going to take a look at the Nielsen numbers for streaming, and they're going to see... Oh, hey, here's all of these TV shows from 5, 10, 15 years ago that people are watching that are the top 10 shows on Nielsen 
maybe we should take some of these movies from that time and put them back in the theaters and not just the big hits, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or the Goonies or whatever. Why not? Why not re-release Body Heat or Romancing the Stone or uh, uh, Falling Down? Black Rain, uh, any 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 movie that had any kind of impact, any kind of following, any kind of success, or well, I, I, or I mean, or I, you I, could do something like Buckaroo Banzai, which didn't have oh, an audience no. the first time. Re-release it in theaters. Let the audience let it let it find its audience again. Can can we have Ice Pirates? <laughs> sure, why not Ice Pirates? You, uh, what was the other one? Um, do you uh, really want Falling Down to be in the theater and give people I, ideas? It's a little, I was a little, I, you know, when I no, I said, said that, yeah, I'm I like, deliberately <laughs> chose that one. I deliberately said I'm that. Just one. making sure. a little sure. close to home these days. <laughs> but see, that's but, that's the kind of thing. I mean, yeah, sure. Re, you, there's all sorts of talk about remaking films. Just re-release the films. And they're going to find a whole new audience with a with a completely new generation of people that have never seen it before, except on the TV. Touch, touch them up and and uh, you know remaster it, I guess, like they do with you know with albums. Yeah, uh, you know, do a remastered version. Uh, you know, upscale it so that it, maybe some of them would be great in IMAX, and they never had a chance to hit IMAX. Well, and it's these it's these same people, the the same generation that's discovering. Vinyl records and mm-hmm. VHS tapes, cassette tapes. cassette tapes. Ooh, ooh. Did you ooh. know on Marketplace there's a twenty dollar Sony Walkman available? Maybe, I... maybe we get the eight track come back. Uh, well, <laughs> the eight track. I... Why not? I did I, have yeah. a friend put one in his car on purpose. Yeah, I, I was at, I was at Walmart. They're re- remodeling our Walmart. I don't know. I think they're adding something for more for this, you know, online order where you can order and pick up stuff. Yeah. I think they're adding a whole new sec- uh, appendage to the building for that. But in the process, they're like totally remodeling anything. I couldn't find hardly anything. Made my way back to electronics where it's at now. Fortunately, it wasn't shifted too far over. Uh, and uh, I counted five different turntables yeah. available. Five different turntables, and I'm like, you can go. On I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I remember my dad before he had died. He had bought one that had a USB uh, port on it, so you could connect it up, so you could, you know, rip rip your rip your records, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and, and, yes. And my dad has been gone for a number of years now. You know, we're talking ten years probably at least. So, you know, and I'm like, oh, that's cute. You know, I think that was kind of a, they came out with it for for people of his his generation, you know. But Mm -hmm. but then I'm like, (laughs) kind of disappeared a little bit. And then all of a sudden vinyl started making a comeback. And now, although I personally made a vow back in the 80s to never buy music from Walmart because of their um, (laughs) sensorious nature. They always have a, yeah, they don't sell anything that, has is. a little tag on there that's you know saying yeah they won't they everything that they have has been stripped clean unfortunately and that and and at, that was the last you know once they made that decision that was the last time I ever bought a any music from one I used to but, get my stuff from is, Sound Warehouse. Funny thing is, is that if you get Prince's 
Um, oh, I forget which album it is now off the top of my head. But, you know, he has the song Sexy MFR. And yeah. if you get the clean version, he, it goes Sexy Mother. <laughs> so every time it's supposed to say the F word, that's what it does. And you get to the point where you're listening to that and you start ooh with it. <laughs> Yeah, my, my, that yeah. might that might have been deliberate. No, well, no, no, no. I mean, you have the original, but then you have the clean up version. And when you accidentally make the mistake of buying the album, that's the clean up version. First of all, Prince cleaned up. No, and then second of all, if it's that, you kind of get in the habit of doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, Go yeah. Gojira says I I got to see two versions of Frankenstein from London theater doing this on the on the movie screen. Uh, so yeah, that's this is the one where Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller were switching roles. Um, and we've got we've got votes for Ice Pirates. Uh, Weatherman says I'd like to see a remaster of Space Hunter. Yeah. 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 Are, are we coming to the point yet where I where I where I dare say I I would like to see some modern day remakes yet of of some things that haven't well they've aged well but they're still very it was clearly the late seventies early eighties movies. Well, see and, that's you know, the, that's the question. Because I mean, Highlander's we, coming up, right? We're they, getting they a are. Highlander. Yeah, we'll probably we'll probably get a one-off Highlander because there can only there can be there can only, only one. Be one. Um, <laughs> so we'll have that. Uh, you know, Cavill's doing the Warhammer, uh, whatever that's going to be, a series or a movie or whatnot. I'm really looking forward to the Pendragon stuff from Daily Wire. I, I'm okay. looking at this, and and I've got to make a note. I've got to go back to our previous shows where I discussed this because they're asking for links. Uh, the, the PR people, they're asking for links to when we talk about this stuff. So I gotta, <laughs> now I've got to do homework. But, uh -oh. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at this stuff and I'm thinking, this looks really cool. This looks very, very, very impressive, uh, the production value on this stuff. I, I'm ready. We need new stuff. It doesn't necessarily have to be franchises. But we need new stories. We need new material out there that's not the same recycled six IPs over and over and over again. I mean, yeah. at yeah, this I point mean, right now, Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, Doctor Who, they all need a rest. Mm -hmm. um, Marvel, DC, if Marvel is doing their reset to, you know, if if the stories are true that Feige is using the strikes as an excuse to reset everything, and we've seen I've seen that from a number of different sources now. Cameron Pasha talked about it a little bit. I think I saw like Cosmic Book News or Comic Book News or some somebody over the ComicBook.com somebody reported on it. You have the the stuff that's in the trades that Feige is using this opportunity to reset some things. We've got you know. Daredevil is getting reshot. We've got Captain America World Economic Forum is getting reshot. Silk is getting completely redone from from the ground up. So maybe maybe they're yeah. sitting there going, you know what, our audience for these movies really should that, be guys. And, and that's my that's my apprehension against saying, Oh yeah, you know, I really want to see a Flash Gordon movie yeah. that is done with modern 
you know, a, a combination I, of, as long as it's got practical effects. We need to I, see. Well, I got to look up because Taika Waititi was working on a Flash Gordon project at one point. It started out to be an animated picture, and then, uh, and then I guess maybe about six to eight months into it, it flipped to a live action. And I haven't heard anything since then on that particular project. We're also supposed to be getting an updated Buck Rogers. And and George Clooney is involved in that one as a producer, last I heard. But those two projects, I haven't heard anything about them in, in a long while. What 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 genre of Buck Rogers are we talking? Something like the TV show, or are we talking about going like, back, to like the going comic? back, going back to the comic strip, going back to the original Buck Rogers? So it wouldn't have. I mean, I mean, the TV show was Buck Rogers, and it was updated. For, you know, depending, you know how how yeah, he, how he shuttle, got there. But yeah, <laughs> and of course, you have the the late seventies, early eighties aesthetic. Yeah. But if you if you go back to the original Buck Rogers, then you're telling you know, you're in, you're doing a war movie. Wasn't isn't a lot of that stuff going to be public domain pretty soon? Uh, the, like next year or the well, year after? That's that's a question. Buck I don't Rogers. I don't know because yeah. John Carter, the Barsoom novels, the first five of them in the series are in the public domain. Because of the publication date, right? The ones that came after that are still not. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how cl- how close to Barsoom, uh, Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers were. I know they were in the. I want to say they were in the late twenties, early thirties. Yeah. But I'd have to go back and look. Because I think you know, there's a dearth of of in, in, of stuff. Yeah. Now the question is, I, I know Canada did some sort of thing with their. I I, I don't know if they brought their copyright uh, public domain rules kind of be in line with ours a couple of years ago or something like that. Um, I don't know. So I don't know if they did. I mean, if the stuff is available here, then obviously it would be, you know, usable there. I think I think some stuff was already usable at one point up there but obviously you can't do something there and try to release it in an american market so right well and um, and the the other thing you know gojira was talking about john carter and you know the fact that the first movie was the first movie was fun we enjoyed the first movie and it was a pretty good pretty good adaptation of of princess of mars um yeah. but it also gives me the opportunity to recommend uh, John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood by Michael Sellers. It is an excellent book that talks about the travails and the trials and the encumbrances that are attached to John Carter and how much trouble it has been to bring this property to the movie screen. And this is decades of of wrangling back and forth on rights and who's going to produce it and what story they're going to tell and this, that, and the other. And by the time you get to Lasseter making the movie, it's, you know, it's already an orphan because all of the executives at the studio that were a part of it to green light it are all gone. 
yeah. the marketing was being handled by some Yahoo in, in New York who didn't know anything about any of this stuff. So, you yeah. know, it's it's one of those things. Now, Weatherman is mentioning Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, Sky Commander, uh, Amber Chronicles. Well, and, and that's how we got has, Star Wars. You has know, there ever been the, anything of Amber? I, I haven't seen anything from, from that. I don't that. think there's ever been anything. I don't yeah. think anybody's ever done it. I would love to see movies, well, probably probably miniseries based on uh, Dragon Riders of Pern, for example. But I don't think you could do it. I mean, you, the technology is there now to do the dragons. Right. And that was the first thing I thought of when I saw Game of Thrones. I was like, oh, they can do dragons. Let's. Uh, where's Pern? You know, yeah. I, I didn't care about Game of Thrones. And, and, well, no, and that, George is that not going to finish that book. But now I see now I see we can do dragons. I want Pern. But you got to do it right. And you can't do it in the movie theaters. It's too big. Right. Well, and that's kind of like the whole Dragonlance thing that, that uh, Manganiello was yeah. was working on, and then you know, lots he kind of screwed that one up. <laughs> like and, like and, they do. And there was, and there's so much work of Ed Greenwood that could have been done, either series or theatrically. You know, that would make excellent movies. Well, or the, excellent TV series. The you thing know? you know, I was talking to talking to Dan Dickholz about his book. Uh, wavelengths, which is kind of the you know, the alternate universe Starlog stuff, right? And mm-hmm. he's got in one of his in one of his uh, discussions, uh, Gulliver of Mars became a thing, which is the other Connecticut Yankee on on the Red Planet type of story. You've got John yeah. Carter, you've got that whole series of John Carter, but you also have Gulliver on Mars. You have a completely other different character. That ends up on Mars, and those stories have never been adapted. Hardly anybody knows about them. Uh, I think his name is Gulliver Jones. is is the is the character name, and I I've heard of it, but yeah. you know nobody's familiar with that stuff. So, huh. well, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that's never been done, and a lot of it is that hasn't been. There's been nothing done since the 20s or 30s or you know whatever and i mean you know dune has been done what three times this is the third yeah uh, big yeah. theatrical type incarnation well big big budget style it's I, the I guess, second it's it, the second theatrical movie i mean sci-fi right. sci-fi channel did the two miniseries yeah and that was that was kind of interesting because they did go into uh what children are doing i think it was so. They they did the same thing that I think uh, Villeneuve's going to do. They combined Children of Dune and Dune Messiah. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard there may be a Dune 3 yeah. in the war. Vill- too, Villeneuve's so. going to do a third movie, and then he's done. So I, I we may never get God Emperor. But or, that's or anything a whole other story. Do, no, I know, but um. but you've got uh, you've got Sisterhood of Dune. Which is the TV show that's coming? And by the way, I got an email back from Kevin J. Anderson. Oh, we sent an, I sent an invite for him and Brian to come on the show and talk about all things related to Dune. And he says they have to decline because Legendary, the production company, is doing all of the specific PR. marketing for all the all the Dune stuff. 
and they're keeping a tight lid and a very very strict control over what they do. So, uh, so I am I'm gonna I'm gonna follow up with Kevin, and I'm gonna ask him if he's got a contact person that we can reach out to over at Legendary who's handling this stuff. So we'll see. I don't know. That would be interesting. Yeah, you know, because Kevin and Brian have been on the show before. And, yeah. you know, but now that the movie is coming out and it's going to be out next Friday, then um, there's contracts and whatnot. Yeah, all. yeah there's yeah. obligations so. and whatnot. So, so there you yeah. Well, I'd like to, you know, like I said, there's a lot of stuff. You know, I even read something that said, you know, the, that there, the, the, a second D&D movie, because we don't really count the first two that ever came out way back when. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, those see, were those were B movies at best, and yeah. I don't even think they'd uh, they'd make our friends list on the B movies. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you're but, talking about a sequel to Honor Among Thieves. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and that's still on the table. Of course, you know, Watsy sold E1, which did the first one, and you know, but you know, it. But see, the thing it, about it is, though, you you look at you look at because Paramount put out that that film and if warner brothers and universal does a merge of some sort does a merger there some kind of acquisition that leaves paramount hanging out there in the wind because the the idea the speculation was that paramount would join up with warner brothers discovery or Universal, one or the other. Now, Skydance made an offer. Byron Allen made an offer. But mm-hmm. they were all still sitting there saying, you know, a Warner Brothers Discovery merger would be their best their, their best option. And if Warner Brothers Discovery is looking at Universal, what does that do to Paramount? Paramount just kind of sits there. Because they're, yeah. mer- they're going to merge. Uh, they're going to merge Paramount Plus and Peacock. Is it? Yeah. Right? Paramount Plus and Peacock are, are coming together. So, you know, all of that content, all that programming, I hate the word content, all that programming is going to be mixed. So now you're going to have that. I think Paramount Plus, which is odd because Paramount Plus is a CBS and and Peacock is NBC Universal. Right. Peacock is their their streaming service. Yeah. I may have that wrong. It might not be it might not be Paramount Plus and Peacock. What was the what's the other one then? Oh, um, what would it was? I mean, I can't watch the CW's one. Yeah, <laughs> that's too many that's ads, <laughs> and you can't skip over them. What's the other? What's the other NBC? It, it's got to be. There's another NBC streamer, right? I don't. Do I have that wrong? I, I thought, no, I thought they moved everything to Peacock because, because remember, you know, NBC Comcast was part of the Hulu deal, and to me, they lost half their content when when Comcast pulled out of that. Yeah. Um. You know, like because I liked watching the Chicago series, you know, the Chicago Fire, Chicago, you know, PD, and all that stuff. And yeah, it is. And, par- it is. Then par- I couldn't. Paramount Plus and Peacock reportedly considering a partnership. Okay, so that that is, but see, and that's Paramount and Comcast Universal, right? So what does that de- what happens to that deal if Universal ends up over with Warner Brothers Discovery? Well, I mean, maybe the three of them could team up. You know, um, not necessarily an acquisition, or or maybe. 
they would acquire one and team up with the other? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what would be financially advantageous at that point because Z, when Zaslav took over Warner Brothers Discovery, the big push for him and all of the stuff that he was saying with, with earnings calls and interviews and everything else was we need to find a way to maximize the monetization of our product. And the, the, the big thing at the time was we make this thing at the studio and then we put it on our own channel and we don't make any money because we're not licensing it to somebody else. We're not getting the distribution fees by keeping it in-house. Right. And so if we make this thing at Warner Brothers Pictures or we make something at Warner Brothers Television, we should be looking to shop it around to places like Netflix or Peacock or the CW or wherever so they can pay us for it. It was yeah, a novel I, concept at the time. It's like, wait a minute, you want to make money doing this? What a shock. I don't I don't know what CW is even doing now, you know, that aren't weren't they trying to skew towards an older They're audience gonna, or something? Well, according to their data, when Nextstar bought it, mm-hmm. according to their their internal numbers, a lot of the audience had started to skew toward the fifty something male demographic anyway. Probably hey, probably there. because <laughs> of, of you know, the Arrowverse and and whatever else. But, I liked but, the Arrowverse early on. The, the last, <laughs> it was later on. Yeah, I the last like I saw, uh, the plan was to lean into reality and documentary type of programming, I think, is what they're going to end oh, up doing. We got, and, you know, we're the, not going to bring the, back reality again, are we? Uh, well, maybe not Not necessarily reality like Survivor or, or Real Housewives reality, but more... Uh, Deadliest maybe maybe deadliest catch type stuff, you know, bear grills type of thing, travel travel documentaries or whatnot. I don't know exactly what uh, they're playing. Although some at. of that's a little too overscripted as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah, they all are. I I, I think really, uh, you know, the the, the tra- deadliest catch wasn't too bad because it wasn't overly scripted. But really, once you got past thirty jobs, yeah. I mean, dirty jobs. That was not scripted. <laughs> that was clearly, it was, or if it was, it was scripted poorly. Um, Keely, but but that's what made it lovely. Yeah, Keeley's <laughs> hoping the CW and Disney don't reboot Buffy. I don't think there's much chance of that, and the and the reason for that is you cannot easily separate Buffy from Joss Whedon. Right, that's his baby. That'd be well. I mean. At of course, some, you couldn't easily separate Star Wars from George Lucas, and look, well, look what well, happens when you do. Yeah, but see, the thing about it is, though, with with the case of Star Wars, yeah, George sold it, and there's that separation there, but there's also a lot of people sitting there saying, this is not what George would have done. And I don't think you'd get that with with a Buffy reboot. You know, people are not going to champion Joss Whedon because well, this is not of, what Joss would do, but yeah, Joss not, has been canceled. Yeah, yeah, they're not going to sit there and say, you know, Joss, you know, you know, what, what, the, it's not, it's not faithful to Joss. Well, nobody cares about Joss right now. M- Mrs. Boss, you have a Oh, thought? I was just going to say there was an, a thing that came out. I don't know if you saw it on the email, but the, who is it that does all the, um, who does it all the, 
like with Doctor Who, the and podcast or the, the yeah, audio. The, the audio. Big I saw something yeah. about Buffy, Buffy and that's was been canceled. canceled? That. Yeah, that Buffy audio series podcast, whatever it was supposed yeah, to the, be. Yeah, I read that got... yesterday. Interesting. And I don't know if you also saw that went through. Um, James Gunn has posted a selfie online of the cast I for, actually uh, have that story sitting here in the stack. Ooh. Yes. Because people are saying uh, they're speculating here that this is part of making uh, making the Warner Brothers property more attractive to people who might want to sell might want to buy it. So here here's this thing here the um, variety James Gunn posts first Superman legacy cast photo after the table read, uh, Nicholas Holt back there in the back with his shaved head for Lex Luthor. You get corn sweat behind him there next to him. Here's all of the cast. There's Nathan Fillion in the front. I, I'm still not buying him as Guy Gardner. I'm sorry. Uh, the cast of James Gunn's Superman Legacy is officially assembled. Wait, do I see? Is that? Yeah, there's, uh, there's Supergirl right there on the side. What's her name? Alcock? Is that her, that her name? So... This this one behind Nathan Fillion, she's I believe this is Hawk Girl. Maybe one of these two. This these one of these two little ones here. One of them is Hawk Girl. One of them is the the villain uh, from the the Authority storylines. Here's here's Lois Lane. There's Jimmy Olsen back there. Um, so yeah, we've got most of our cast. They're uh, ready to go. Um, after the table read with Superman, cast Gun wrote in the caption: "Eve, Mister Terrific, Superman and Clark, Otis, Lex, Producer Peter Safran, Jimmy, Metamorpho, Lois, Hot Girl, Me, Guy, the Engineer, all together for the first time." So hmm. there they are, ladies and gentlemen. The uh, the cast. Of Superman Legacy. I don't see a Perry White there yet. No, they maybe not cast him yet, or uh, either that, or they haven't announced it yet. But if they did a table read, they've got to have they've got to have a Perry White. Yeah. I don't know. What about Firefly? Any? I mean, that's another Joss Whedon, isn't it? So. Yeah. Um, well, they did. Uh, they did a follow up Firefly comic book. Same as they did with Smallville, they 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 kept going with uh, with Firefly with Smallville in the comics. The next season, they did it with Buffy as well, um, yeah. and and they could do more of that probably. I don't think I don't think Firefly. I don't think any Joss Whedon property is ever coming back. Not not for another ten years, long while. Yeah. Yeah. So. Because I know it wasn't Fillion like gung ho about. Oh yeah, I'd love to get back on. Oh sure, yeah. That. Well, he and he and uh, he and um, crap. What's his name? Um, Wash. Uh, yeah, Alan Tudyk. Thank you. They yeah. they they were all about it, and all these different conventions, and different appearances, and different things that they had done. Uh, they were talking about it, and but you know. Uh, Ron Coleman is is gone. Uh, Ron Coleman, yeah, uh, uh, preacher man. Yeah, he's he's dead. Um, 
So you couldn't get everybody back. <coughs> and then, you know, Whedon himself being canceled the way that was, which might have might have been a real cancellation. It might have been. Ron Glass, thank you. Yes, I don't know why I said Coleman. Ron Glass. Um, I mean, you could you could probably do not necessarily. Yeah, yeah, and I know Alan Tudyk, you know, Wash being dead and whatnot, but you could do a reboot. Not necessarily a sequel. You could do a reboot and and do a brand new Firefly and just start over again. I, I you know, I, I was I was thinking, that. what about a prequel? It'd be kind of interesting to see. I, I'm prequeled out. I'm. I don't want to see any other prequels for another fifteen or twenty years, and by that time, maybe I'll be dead and I'll miss them anyway. So, because we don't need we these characters, <coughs> whatever it is, Star Wars, Star Trek, whatever. I mean, because they've been floating around the idea of a Starfleet Academy story. You know, Kirk at the Academy for decades. We thought. I and, remember being in middle school before. Uh, before Next Generation came out, and I think that yeah. was that rumor was floating around. Our- it has been an idea since Harve Bennett was doing the movies. Star Trek two, three, four, five, yeah. or Harve Bennett, and a Starfleet Academy idea was being floated around even back then. And nobody wants this story. We don't need to see Kirk in the Academy. If you're going to do that- a Star, I mean, now you could do a Starfleet Academy show. But give yeah. us original characters. Give us right. new cadets. Give us that next generation. And that's that ended up, you know, you have it, the next generation on the Enterprise D, and we didn't get the Academy stuff. We didn't get the, the cadets. I mean, well, you know, uh, subtle tie-ins are fine. But outright, you know, oh, well, we, it has to be the same character. And, of course, now we've made all these changes to what the character is and you know and what he was, and you know. Yeah, I don't know, need a. I don't need a don't prequel. It, it, when you see these characters in these movies, they are fully formed. Han Solo was a fully formed character in Star Wars. Right. Dar- Darth Vader was a fully formed character in Star Wars. I don't need to know where they came from, because this is where they are when you're telling the story that really we want to know. I don't yeah. need to know how I'm, he got here. This is this is who he is. This is who he, this this is where we're at now. So yeah, prequels to me are superfluous. Now, having said that, the prequel trilogy to Star Wars does give us how we got here, but it right. also it also is the first half of the redemption arc that we already got the second half of in this in the original trilogy. Right. So, so it made sense. Yeah, because yeah, Lucas and, had always said we're starting in the middle. Yeah, yeah, and and, and it, you know I was never uh, a hater, if you will, on the on the prequels. I thought, eh, yeah, the whole the whole thing about nobody could ever tell George no was probably a big problem with. with oh, the it prequels. absolutely was. Uh, Rick, there, Rick McCallum was. <clears throat> How, however much he brought to the table as the producer, I think Rick McCallum was Rick McCallum was not Gary Kurtz. I'll say it that way. Yeah. You know, if, we, if you've got a George Lucas type of person, you need a Gary Kurtz right there next to him in partnership. And yeah. and, and he didn't have that for the prequels. Yeah, they. I mean, they spent a little too much time on some of the 
politics and a little too much time on the romance, more more so than needed to be, I think, and that kind of yeah. is what drug it out, especially at, I don't remember how old I was when that came out. I know I was already an adult. So, you know, 99, I think, is when the first one hit. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I was probably, what, 24, 25. But, but, you know, uh, but overall, you know, I enjoyed the politics part. The the romance thing was kind of like, oh, Annie, oh, Padme, oh, Annie, oh, Padme. (laughs) But speaking of Star Wars, I did watch the the drop, the uh, episode drop yesterday oh yeah for bad batch yeah yeah not bad i mean the first one was kind of a little drawn out a little you know it was backstory building showing you what happened to yeah uh, we we haven't watched it yet so you haven't watched it yet yeah Yeah. i mean it's you know well we had we had uh because i i had comics division i was on yelling apart cars last night the night before that was dune part two so we've been kind of scrambling here to try to catch up on a bunch of things. By the way, uh, Mindy is working on her review of Dune Part 2. Uh, speaking oh, of Superman, Tom Connors has posted over here, um, I don't know what this is. There's no context for this. So let's just let's let's put it in that setting. But he has posted this photograph of some kind of Superman suit I don't know if this is official. Um, the the shield kind of looks like the Kingdom Come S without the co- the Kingdom Come colors. You've know, got the gold background instead of the black background there. I don't know what this is. Uh, Tom Tom has not uh, given this any context on this. Um, but if this is the Superman Legacy costume. The red trunks are back, and that's good. And it it looks like the cape is actually attached to the suit instead of it's going to be a CG thing. Now, it's still textured, uh, but it doesn't look like it's little S shields all over the thing. It looks like it's just textured. I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to get back to the spandex. Yeah, and get out of the, I don't know, what, are you, what do you call that? Uh neoprene or yeah whatever yeah uh, um, reminds everything all the all the current suits remind me of uh you know i expect them to be donning uh, uh an air tank and snorkel <laughs> right <laughs> but it does it i mean if this is the suit it looks pretty good i'm not quite sure about the shield but at, at least at least the color scheme's right yeah i don't know we'll see yeah that would I don't know. That'd be interesting. I, I I don't know. There's like I said. There's a there's a lot of stuff I'd like to see, um, but I you know I'm I'm still apprehensive. I'm still shy about uh, them trying to put the message before the the story. Yeah. You know, the message. Maybe <laughs> yeah yeah like like Drinker says the message. You know, with yeah. With echo and stuff. It might it might not. It might not be that way. I don't know. I I I have not seen enough, uh, one way or the other, to guess whether or not Gunn is going to do that. I'm leaning toward not, but I'm I'm not going to sit there and say one way or the other what I expect on any of this stuff because they, I'm tired of being disappointed. To, they need to check their budgets too. They need to stop. Oh yes. 
throwing this mad amount of money at it and then just making it up in reshoots and you know oh hey we got a new we got oh 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 oh, new artwork for the omnibus here let me let me do it this way let me let me let me pull it up this way so so you can see it new omnibus because we got the news that we're getting getting the dc marvel omnibus brand new and apparently there's a new cover art they're they're doing this this uh for the cover interesting yeah mrs boz is on the phone she won't hear me say i've got a birthday coming up me too. I've, I've I've got a I've got a birthday coming up here. I've, I, we got these this these DC Marvel omnibus. I want the amalgam collection. Now, are those going to be? Uh, is that comic or is that just or is that going to be like a graphic novel? It's it's the original stuff in a new collection. Okay. It's the it's the original. It's it's Superman. It's the Superman meets Spider Man. It's. Uh, Superman, I, I don't know if Superman Muhammad Ali is in there, but Superman fighting Spider-Man, all of the DC versus Marvel where the Justice League and the Avengers are, you know, all of that stuff from the 80s. And and the Amalgam stories are coming in its own collection. DC and Marvel are going to reprint all of this for the first time in forever. 30, 40 years? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. This is something we never thought we were going to get again. And especially the amalgam. Because all of this stuff all this stuff has to be co-publishing. Right? Because right. the copyrights and the rights and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And DC and Marvel haven't been talking to each other. <laughs> and that has... This goes back to this whole thing. Somebody over there said, Hey, maybe we ought to put something out that people will buy. Maybe you we think? ought to do something <laughs> that the fans will like. And, you know, pendulum swinging back to center. The world yeah. is healing. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. Maybe we're past that turning point. We've turned that corner in the culture war where people are starting to realize maybe we were the bad guys. We should probably not be the bad guys anymore. Not if you want to sell me something. That's right. Or sell me on something. No. But you got. Um, I saw. Was it? Is it Jerry Ordway? <laughs> Jerry Ordway, I think, is coming back to DC to do a book. Garth Ennis is coming back to write Punisher again. I'm like, wait a minute. Who's who's in charge of these of these imprints now? Who's in charge of these comic books now that are that are actually starting to use people that fans would say, yeah, I'll buy that book. I mean, you've got Ultimate Spider... You know, they've brought back the Ultimate Marvel line, and so you have Ultimate Spider-Man, where Peter Parker and Mary Jane are married again. It's it's almost like somebody said, let's, let's take all of the things the fans have complained about and give it to them. <laughs> make a list and let's yeah. fix them. Yeah, well, hopefully they don't fix them the wrong way, you know. That's that's the biggest. Oh, uh, you know, I, I'm just I'm like I like you like you said. I, I'm so I'm so hopeful. There's a glimmer of hope, you know. I see that light at the end of the tunnel, but I'm just worried. It's the it's the train of well, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, ah. it's 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 one of those things. I mean, this stuff's coming in August of 2024. These two books, 
But yeah, here's the uh, here's the cover here's the cover for the amalgam collection. I can't wait for this. This this is I've I have not been excited about a comic book prop project, and I don't know when, but I want these two books. Yeah, all so, my all my comic so books. Super chats, are, are... guys! Give me super chat. I need to, I need to buy these books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on, oh, give me money. To, give me money. Super chat, can't we? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, this is this is going to be fun. Um, this book is listed on Amazon right now for a hundred and thirty-one dollars. And the DC, the DC, because these are hardcovers, and they're collecting okay. all of the stories. So DC versus Marvel Omnibus, a uh, hundred uh, list price is a hundred and fifty for each one of them. So, well, that sounds good. And that's that's I, a know. lot of that's a lot. I'm, of I'm stuff. happy for all my comic collecting buddies out there. I I never got into the comic collections, but uh, but I have you know half my friends did. So, well, you the know. DC the DC versus Marvel omnibus. You got Sp- Superman versus uh, the Amazing Spider-Man number one. Um, you've got. Uncanny X-Men and New Teen Titans when they met. Batman Punisher is in there. Uh, another Punisher Batman. Darkseid versus Galactus. Um, Green Lantern, Silver Surfer. Silver Surfer, Superman. Batman, Captain America. Daredevil, Batman. Batman, Spider-Man. Sp- uh, Superman, Fast- Fantastic Four. A lot of these, I didn't even realize they'd done this many of them. Batman, and they're, faith, they're faithful reprints. As long as they're faithful reprints, that's, see, that's, that's the thing. How are how are they going to be colored? That's that's the thing, is uh, because you're coloring on a different type of paper, using a different process. It's probably a digital file that they're working from instead of the original scans. It's going to be a, probably a gloss as opposed to a yeah, matte. Yeah, it'll be a it'll probably be semi gloss or a gloss, and and it's mm-hmm. likely going to lose some detail. Because you know, they when they when they go and they clean this stuff up, some of it looks pretty good. Some of it looks really weird. So yeah. I'm 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 hopeful, but also uh, a little worried. Yeah, but that Superman suit looks pretty good. If that's if that's official, I don't know. Kind of reminds me of you know. From the from the Superman movies <laughs> from yeah. the seventies, eighties. Well, it's the right color. It's it's the comic. Yeah. It's it's comic yeah. book accurate, except for the shield. So yeah, and that's what was always off putting about it. I'm like, ah, that doesn't look like the real one, you know. And yeah. So I kind of get that, but anyway, look at that. We've know. already gone. We've already gone past our three hours. So let's let's yeah. quit. Let's quit for the day. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks thanks for calling in, sir. Hey, not a problem. <laughs> Always uh, happy to <laughs> get in there and rap about stuff. Yeah. All right. So there is uh, there is our social media contacts and all of the different places where you can find us. The Discord server is always live and active. It's not very active. Uh, it would be nice to have some more uh, some more conversations going on over there. But it is it is alive at least. There's a newsletter that's not quite as alive. Uh, all the different places on social media where you can find us. And uh, that's going to do it for us today. Now, I did say 
Uh, I was going to try to do a Hugo Award conversation for tomorrow's show. We're going to bump that to later because uh, I want to get Brad Torgerson and Sarah Hoyt and Richard Palinelli in that mix. And Brad's doing Army stuff this week, so uh, so he's not available. So we're going to hold off on that. And that also gives us time for the other shoes to drop because I know that at least one more is coming. Uh, I would expect maybe maybe two. So we'll see what happens there. So in the meantime, we'll just kind of we'll do open line tomorrow, uh, and and see what happens. I don't know. We'll see because you guys need to call in. We need yeah. we need people to call in. All right, that's it for us today, folks. Thanks very much for being here. Have a great day, the rest of your day. And uh, remember, the politicians hate you. The media lies to you. But God has a plan for you. And there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio, copyright 2024, by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio.